Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is the second part of a multi-part series called Ideologies of the Ancients. And in this one, we'll be looking at the founder of the Persian Achaemenid Empire, Cyrus. If you want to check out the first part, that's on Ashurbanipal, and I do reference it a couple of times here. But hey, I'm not here to tell you how to lead your life, and uh, if you want to do just jump straight in, I think it's mostly uh, intelligible on its own. Now, as a quick note about the format of the podcast, if you're looking at some of these um, episodes and how long they are with um, feelings of trepidation, I'm intending this as something of an exception. I'm going to take a break from this series next week, and that's just going to be another interview, more of the standard length and format, and more generally going to stay with my usual goal of keeping the episodes like an hour, maybe an hour and change. I did find with this series, like I so got into it, and like the story I wanted to tell, and the particular digressions and thoughts I wanted to get into and explore, it did just make more sense doing like a true um, long format for this one. So if you're not such a fan of that, we will be returning to uh, usual programming soon. But I hope you do. I had a lot of fun with this, and I'd encourage you to, um, you know, check it out and see what you think and... Uh, please do give me your feedback. As always, if you want to support the show, I really do pour a huge amount of time and love and energy into these things, so if you like it, uh, please do share it on your own social media or recommend it to friends, and if you are able to support in a more monetary way, please do check out our Patreon page. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. Um, I hope you enjoy. This is the next part of my multi-part series, Ideologies of the Ancients, looking at Cyrus. of contemporary historical fiction, as well as a lot of sort of um, fantasy that draws on historical fiction, seems to be evolving in pop culture towards a genre that it all tends to be made within. And you all understand what I mean by a genre, right? So something like romantic comedies are a genre. There's different, there's a range of them, but there's sort of common conventions that they share. There tends to be certain narrative practices. There tends to be certain stylistic decisions that are made when you make a romantic comedy that sort of, like, let the audience know basically what they're going to ex- what, what get from that. You sort of know, even if I didn't tell you a movie was a rom-com, if I sat you down and you watched the first 15 minutes of it, you'd probably have a sense that that was what you were watching, and you'd probably sort of have a sense of where it was going. So if you're watching a rom-com, you're probably as good as even money that it's going to end with um, 
some sort of rush for one character to declare love to another character, right? You sort of, we all sort of know what I'm talking about here. And the fact that filmmakers and authors often play with these conventions and shift them around a little bit, um, so one of my favourite films, uh, No Country for Old Men, I think what makes it clever is it draws from different genres in a way that's counter-expectational to the audience. It looks a bit like a western, but then it's also a bit like a, a noir film, and it blurs them. But the fact that the fact that filmmakers do that and they play with those conventions just shows you how hardwired those conventions are to us, filmmaking, novel writing, and so on, are languages, and the audiences understand those languages, and so deep-seated are those languages, that when they're played with, or the sort of basic rules and principles of them are broken, it can be quite shocking to us. So, I have a sort of theory that over the last probably 20, 30 years, it might be longer, we've sort of developed a new genre, a new sort of uh, narrative language for how we do historical fiction. And I think this is exemplified quite well by Game of Thrones. There's, by the way, a huge amount of content out there on Game of Thrones. I'm not going to give you my analysis of it. My personal take is probably the same as everyone else's, that it was, you know, pretty good at first and weren't so sure about those final few seasons. But what I'm interested in, and why I start with it, is I think there's a definite genre there. And by the way, I love historical fiction. I read a lot of historical fiction, and I think it's pretty clear if you've been reading historical fiction for a while that a lot of the stuff that perhaps to a television audience seemed new and distinctive about Game of Thrones was actually picking up on a number of tropes and conventions and ways of telling a story that had already been quite well fleshed out in novels of historical fiction, as well as novels of fantasy. And fantasy often essentially boils down to historical fiction, I would, to my mind, Game of Thrones is as much in the historical fiction camp as it is in the fantasy camp. I think there's enough there that's like drawing from uh, fictional retellings of the Wars of the Roses than there are dragons, say. And it's, you know, it's actually debatable how much the dragons really add to it. They're the icing on the cake, the, the flying, fiery icing on the cake. But anyway, I think there's a number, there's a way that this genre approaches it, which is essentially that these stories are stories about conflict, and they're stories that sort of follow the conflict um, around as one might follow you moving pieces on a chessboard, right? So if you think about Game of Thrones, I'm just going with that one because that's one I think most people know. You've got all of these different characters and narrative arcs in a sort of long war or series of wars perhaps with each other and you sort of follow them around in the same way that you might follow the different moves people are making on a chessboard. Um, I'm guessing in this case you'd have to be quite a complex chessboard with lots of different players or whatever but that's sort of the overall framing of the story. Um, and, again, that's a sort of convention 
that's been growing up in historical fiction and fantasy writing for some time, and it's making its way through now into um, TV and movies and so on. I think a lot of stuff particularly that's come out after Game of Thrones has really sort of picked up on that as the basic narrative structure. But more than that, I think its features are even more specific than that. I think by having this sort of, like, chessboard framing, the particular characters we follow um, and that, the, that we focus on for our sort of character development tend to be what you might call political elites. They're the sort of leaders of the different armies and so on, and in some we'll get a sort of more Dickensian frame where you have characters who are not particularly high status thrown in just to give you a sense of um, sort of what the common man's experience are. But generally, these sorts of narratives focus on their leaders. The other thing is they're very, very epistemically open. The audience is told what we need to know about the world in order to understand the mechanics of it. When someone makes a particular move on the chessboard, we generally have a very clear idea of why they're doing that. Now, occasionally, the author will withhold particular information from the audience in order to, to have a big shock, a big twist, a big surprise reveal. And just staying with the Game of Thrones example, that that narrative has plenty of those, right? But it's still very epistemically open. You, you, you'll get the shock so the audience has the, ooh, wait, what just happened moment? But then pretty quickly afterwards, it'll be explained to you what happened and why. And you won't be left with any sense of mystery as to what, what, was, what was all that about? Even the sort of supernatural elements of the story are often sort of very clearly cashed out and operate by, like, well-defined rules that the narrative just gives you in straight exposition. And following the sort of chessboard metaphor, we're often just literally given a map at the beginning. So with Game of Thrones, the opening credits starts by panning around a map of Westeros. It sort of lets you know this is what this world looks like. And that's a convention that I think follows from um, novels of historical fiction and fantasy, which will almost always start, like the first pages in the novel won't be taxed. There'll be a map of either the you know, real world area that we're looking at, or the sort of fictional, you know, Westeros or whatever, that we're looking at. And again, just very epistemically open. A another way in which it's open is we have this world and we understand the rules by which the world works and the sort of constraints that are acting on these different leaders who we're following around. We're also given a really clear sense of what the characters' beliefs and motivations are. So Game of Thrones novels, we literally get point-of-view perspectives from all of the different, or all of the primary characters, where they just straightforwardly tell us what their beliefs and motivations are. And that's quite common, and even when we see it, you know, you don't have so much as a sort of direct soliloquizing in the TV series, but still, you know, the characters rarely say stuff that's fundamentally mysterious to us. They rarely act and behave in ways that we're like, wait, what? what? I, I, I'm not sure why they're doing that. And to the extent they do, it's part of, um, 
you know, like I say, some surprise that we're going to be let to understand later. But it's rare that we finish one of these novels, or movies, or TV series, being left wondering, what on earth was going on there? Right? So, the world we're set up to understand very well, the, the characters' motivations were set up to understand very well, and what's more, the motivations tend to operate within a range of sort of a sort of cynical pragmatism. The characters are after power, essentially. Now, there's good guys and bad guys. They're, they're, you know, they're going to want to use that power to do different things so that we have a hero or heroine sometimes to cheer for. But they tend to be... They tend to want to win the chess game, and that's their motivation, and they tend to act in a way that's pretty consistent with that throughout. And that tends to be a norm across this genre. If the characters are talking about religion or something, it's often a cynical ploy to further that primary goal of gaining power. And so if the characters are all quite cynical, the, the world itself is also presented as both cynical and brutal. It, it's a world in which bad people are often rewarded for being bad, and that good people often have to do some soul-searching and trade off what's good, for, what, what, what they believe in against what's pragmatic. And indeed, the, the good guys often win by being forced to be pragmatic. And then the final point to make about this sort of um, genre that I think is growing up is it's quite, it's quite a male-centric view of the world. And I use male here just to be clear in terms of, like, traditional or stereotypical constructions of masculinity. I'm not positing that the, the, these are innate per se. Um, but it tends to be a narrative that focuses on men. This narrative of, like, violence and pragmatism and so on, it just, it's just quite male. Um, female characters are often objectified a little, and to the extent that we get female heroes, they often sort of become the hero heroines, I guess, um, by taking on conventionally male characteristics and sort of showing that, you know, they're just as tough as the boys, that they're competing with men in a sort of very male space again, you know, think like Arya from Game of Thrones or something, right? And so if you put all of that together, I think you end up with quite a clear set of rules for, for this genre, which I've heard various people sort of have these thoughts before, this isn't unique to me. Um, and they propose different names for it. In my head, I'll, I'll share this one with you, dear audience, in my head I call it realpolitik porn. Because, I mean, well, yes, it is quite pornographic in terms of that there's a lot of explicit depictions of sex and violence in this sort of genre. That tends to be the staple of it, too. But I call it realpolitik porn because what it's being pornographic about is what it sees as the sort of brutal, cynical, pragmatic realities of politics, just as we're shown sex quite explicitly and um, some, some horrible violence explicitly, we're also sort of shown that the reality of power quite explicitly, how all of these different people are fighting it out and um, the, the sort of um, brutality of the world and so on. And it's really just stripped bare for us and we're just 
given it up front. So you may dislike that tag. I sort of think of it as realpolitik porn. Now, I say all that because if I were to make some sort of historical or fantasy epic, that is not the, the genre I would use. And by the way, realpolitik porn, if I can use that term, that isn't the only genre the ancient and medieval worlds are explored through. So if I think about um, the, the Alexander film by Oliver Stone, which I wasn't a huge fan of, but if I look at that movie, that reads much more to me as operating within sort of like the action-adventure genre than the one that I'm talking about. It's a more idealistic type of enterprise, although still very violent. So I would say to my mind, that's sort of like an action-adventure type movie. And then if you go back to like the Richard Burton era where you have like Anthony and Cleopatra and all of that, that's sort of more like drama, right? It's trying to like redo the sort of Shakespeare plays about the Romans and so on. So there's a number of different genres that you can use. And here's my point. Here's the one I would use. If I weren't making a podcast series, if um, this story I've sort of been telling from the Assyrians, and we're going to get into the Persians in this episode, I think you could make a great Game of Thrones style show out of that. Um, but I wouldn't do it in that sort of realpolitik genre. I'd do it in a contemporary horror genre. Now, here's why I go with that. If you're not a big horror fan, um, and I've... I'm, I'm generally not, actually, myself. I think the first thing you go to is sort of like classic 80s horror, i.e. Um, slasher films, right? So there's, there's something slightly pornographic about them as well, right? And there's a sort of genre we understand where there's like a bunch of characters and they slowly get picked off and it's quite violent and it, it, it revels in shocks and jump scares and, and, and so on. Um, now, I've been forced to watch... Forced is the wrong word, I'll explain. Um, quite a lot of um, contemporary horror that's been coming out, you know, in the last decade or so. And, well, the reason for that is my wife is a huge horror fan. And I was sort of quite reluctant to, to sort of get into this at first because, you know, my stereotype of what a horror movie was was that sort of, like, slasher movie genre, which is, like, fine. I'm not against it. I'm not a prude about, like, movies having a lot of violence in them or something. It's just, like, I'm not a huge fan of jump scares. I don't particularly seek them out. And I sort of feel like once you've seen a few of those movies, you've you've seen them all, you know? But But what I learned after I was sort of slowly pulled through this keyhole to the other side is a lot of more modern horror sort of doesn't work like that. And actually, in some ways, it's kind of like the converse of the realpolitik porn, as I've been calling it, genre. In that, to my mind, the sort of defining feature of the sort of realpolitik genre is we know what we need to know. We know everything about the world and how it works and what the rules of the game are and the characters' motivations. And it's just very real. We sort of, even if it's fantastical and there's dragons and stuff in it, we sort of know what's happening is really happening. Where, as a lot of contemporary horror, what makes it scary and what makes it unsettling is that it's much more epistemically modelled. We're often 
never quite sure if what's happening is really real. Is are we meant to take this as a sort of literal, you know, supernatural or whatever that's happening, or is this something a character is imagining, or is that the wrong question to ask at all? Is this allegorical? Is it metaphorical? What we're being presented with. It also doesn't do that thing that the realpolitik porn does, which when it gives you a shock, it gives you a twist, it immediately explains after that twist what really happened. So think about some of the, the big twists in Game of Thrones, right? Afterwards, you see, oh, well, this character betrayed that one for this reason, right? It's always made clear in the end. Whereas a lot of good modern horror movies don't really do that. So a, a movie you might have seen I quite liked that came out last year, Midsummer. Um, you sort of learn more about the world. You're not flying completely blind. It's not like a surrealist movie where just anything goes and there's absolutely no rules to this universe at all. But it never gets tied together in a neat little bow in a way that a lot of these historical dramas does do. And... I've actually, from an initial place of scepticism about the horror genre, I've come to really appreciate that, because it it creates a different experience for the audience um, than just simply having exposition dumped on you in a sort of traditional um, historical narrative, or even sort of in an action movie where you watch it and you're like, okay, yeah, that was good, I was entertained by this thing. What the, what the modern horror genre does, which, by the way, might not necessarily be any more violent than an action movie or sort of historical epic. You know, indeed, a lot of the good um, modern um, horror movies are quite limited, actually, in their violence. There's a little bit of it. Sometimes there's quite a lot of it. But the, 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 the feature of them that makes them unsettling is this sort of epistemic murkiness, if I can call it that, where you're given some stuff to go on. Like I say, it's not surrealist, it's not random, but not enough to, for there to be a final, definitive analysis of what's going on. And what that means as a, as a viewer is the experience of the movie doesn't end when the credits roll, because what you're left with is... So what was that all about? I sort of think it was about this, and this is sort of what was going on, and this is what the movie was trying to say, but I'm not sure. And what I learned is a big part of the online horror community, which I must admit to stereotyping, when I first heard about it and thought, well, is this just going to be a bunch of people gushing about, oh my god, just here when she gets stabbed? And I, I have to admit, that was a prejudice, a prejudice, prejudging that I had that I got wrong. I mean, there is that, there is that too, I'm not going to lie. But um, a lot of it is sort of essentially hermeneutics. It's interpreting. You know, we've got these objects, these, these films, these narratives. What did that mean? What was going on there? What was that film trying to say? And I just, that just seems really great to me. So do you see where I'm going with this then? I mentioned those two because I think those will be quite accessible to people and you'll sort of, I hope, I think, know what I'm talking about. And to my mind, that sort of modern horror way of storytelling much more closely matches how I think we should be thinking about the ancient world 
than does the realpolitik porn method. Because the realpolitik porn sort of embodies within it a number of assumptions that I think are quite common in our approach to how we think about the ancient world. And we here, I'm more just talking all of us, as opposed to, like, say, professional historians and so on. Although even professional historians often sort of slip back into that framing. And the number of times I've read a history book where they've said, oh, this is what this uh, this general's motive, or you know, politician, or king, or whatever. This is what his motivation was, and this is why he was doing it. And it's always just about like this was the the, the cynical, pragmatic thing he had to do to gain power, often without any evidence at all. It's just that it's just assumed that that's sort of how the world worked and how people behaved. Um, that basically. We assume we sort of know what we need to know about the ancient world. We have the map, here's the cities, here's the armies, and people are doing different things, but their, their motivations are completely intelligible to us. And it all sort of boils down to, like, they want to seize power, right? Now, I'm not saying there's not truth to that story, but to my mind, when I read particularly the primary sources, and, you know, throughout this series, I'm really going to be sticking close to the primary sources. When I read the primary sources, I experience them much more like I would experience a horror movie than, than Game of Thrones. Much more epistemically unclear to me. And often things happen and people do stuff that it's like, what? What was that about? And it's not surrealist. It's not like we have no clue. We have some stuff. But what you're left with at the end of it is kind of this experience of like, so what does that all mean? Why were they doing this stuff? What, what's our takeaway from it? And these change throughout history, right? So I think in many ways, the sort of realpolitik way of telling medieval and ancient history is kind of a reflection of how our society sees that time period. Now, now you go back to like the 50s, 60s, like I say, the Richard Burton era, they're still doing it very much as a drama, which is a way of thinking about the past, I guess, as sort of like a morality play. That's how they experienced it. And now in our world, so heavily structured by the ideological assumption of rational self-interest, so heavily ground down in many ways by the just slowly turning conks of capitalism, we sort of project that back onto the ancients. And we assume that, you know, it was sort of like that, but wilder. More violence, more sacks, people hacking each other up, and all of that. But, but the underlying structure was basically the same. So I think it would be really interesting to do some sort of Game of Thrones-style narrative. And if you think about the story I've been telling, like the Assyrian Empire and the different campaigns they came on, and then how they, they turned on themselves and fought a civil war, and there was this alliance of Babylonians and Medes and the, the, the hordes of Scythians from, from out east, and they came together and they sacked Nineveh. That's, to my mind, that's a great first season, right? But again, the, the genre I would tell that story in would be contemporary horror. It wouldn't be um, 
this sort of um, realpolitik history that tends to dominate this sort of storytelling. So let's pick up in season two then. This is how I'd open season two. And I'm going to give you the story, and I'm going to give it to you basically just from the primary source that we have, which is Herodotus again. And as I'm telling this, you know, this story, you know, it could, it could definitely be a part you know, you can imagine this being a particular pathway in a Game of Thrones-style story. You could imagine it being done that way. But I want you to also think, can you imagine this being done in a sort of modern horror-style genre? So, let's get into, what well, I guess, season two of my big historical epic that if I had $100 million I'd make instead of doing a podcast series on it. But to do a quick recap from season one... The greatest empire that the world has ever known, which ruled all over the current Middle East, the Assyrian Empire, which was very cultured, very learned, also very violent and cruel and repressive, has fallen. Its capital, Nineveh, has been sacked, uh, burnt to the ground, never to be occupied. Again, population slaughtered, and the, the people who took it down are now trying to set up their own power. So the, the Babylonians in modern-day Iraq, they're, you know, fortifying themselves. They've launched a new independent Neo-Babylonian dynasty in what's modern-day Turkey. Peoples called the Lydians have sort of taken... They, they used to call it Asia Minor back in the day, but don't think Turkey now. And then out further east in Iran, in the Zagros Mountains, um, where... The Assyrians had just wiped out this people called the Elamites, and new people have come in and settled called um, the Medes. They're, um, I think, originally a more tribal people. People debate this, by the way. Originally a more tribal people, but um, lots of cavalry, very fine horsemen, that sort of thing. But they sort of settle into, into cities in that area. And then, of course, you've got Egypt is now an independent state again as well. And then those are the main players, but there's all sorts, you know, hundreds of different um, sort of smaller players, like um, the one we would know today would be Judah, right, which is again going to make a bid for its independence after having been an Assyrian vassal kingdom. So you have like four big great powers, and these are not living easily with each other. So that's, that's how we um, open season two. So let's start with a scene from the histories which is told to us by Herodotus. Um, and people will debate whether this is historical or not. Let's just, for the purposes of this analysis, assume that it is. Okay? So quoting from Herodotus's histories, quote, A tribe of wandering Scythians separated itself from the rest and escaped into Median territory. This was then ruled by Syaxeres, son of Pharates, son of Deoces. Syaxeres at first treated the Syrians kindly, as supplicants for his mercy, and, as he had a high regard for them, he entrusted boys to their tutelage, to be taught their language, and to the skill of archery. End quote. So the Scythians, by the way, are one of these more um, nomadic peoples, and one of the things that settled societies in this period always also feared was nomadic peoples. Um, they would see them, their words, not mine, as like barbarians. But more than that, these people tended to be very militarily effective. 
So if you imagine you spend your whole time on the steppe, you ride a horse from almost the moment you can walk and you spend all your time hunting with a bow and arrow, what that type of um, economic system will have produced is people who also happen to be very good at ancient warfare. If you can ride very well and shoot a bow very well, and often shoot a bow while riding, you're really going to be quite dangerous to a lot of these ancient Near Eastern armies that maybe are not made up of professional soldiers. And, you know, you round a bunch of people up together, and you give them bows, you put them on horses, you put them in chariots. If you're not trained to do that, you know, someone who is, is going to be very, very dangerous to you. And so there was always this tension and this fear. But what this um, Siaxeres guy has done here, which seems quite smart, right, is he said, oh, you know, you guys are escaping and you want refuge in my territory. That, that's good. Um, cool, I'll do that. Oh, while you're here, here's some of the, you know, perhaps young nobles of the palace or something like that. It doesn't really go into detail. It just says um, boys to their tutelage. But, um... Let's have them learn how to ride and shoot from you. That seems like a useful thing, right? And apparently this was quite common, that people would sort of like, if we can see, oh, they, these guys are really good at archery or slinging or, like, um, infantry or whatever. Let's see what we can do to, to copy them. People would do this to the Romans no end when they saw how effective Roman legions were. They'd be like, oh, let's, let's get some of those. You know, let's hire a few disgruntled centurions and uh, equip all of our men in Roman armor, and they would literally be called imitation legionaries. So this was quite a common practice in the ancient world, and so far this, this all seems quite mundane, right? Um, so, going back to Herodotus, quote, As time went on, it happened that the Scythians, who were accustomed to go hunting and always to bring something back, had taken nothing, and they returned it back empty-handed. Siaxeres treated them very roughly and contemptuously, being, as he appears from this, prone to anger. End quote. Um, I, I just quick note, as I bring in my different interpretive frames, isn't this just a nice little instance of domination theory at work? Like, there's no rational self-interest there. It's just the pettiest thing. Oh, you didn't bring me anything from the hunt this time? I'm going to really, like, yell at you and maybe even, like, physically abuse you or something. And don't we all just know people in power who, like, fly off the handle at the littlest things? And, like, doesn't that detail just ring true? Anyway, that, that was um, an, an aside. Returning back, quote, The Scythians, feeling themselves wronged by the treatment they had from Siaxeres, planned to take one of the boys who were their pupils and cut him into pieces. Then, dressing the flesh as they were accustomed to dress the animals which they killed, brought and gave it to Siaxeres, as if it were the spoils of the hunt, and, after that, to make their way with all speed to Alates, the son of Sedantares at Sardis. All this they did. Siaxeres and the guests who ate with them dined on the boy's flesh, and for the Scythians, having done as they planned, fled to Alates for protection. End quote. Okay, that story took a turn, right? Now, if this were in the sort of realpolitik style of storytelling, we'd get a lot of exposition 
about, like, they'd discuss what they're going to do. There'd be a particular reason that they went with this. And, you know, perhaps it would be actually that they'd been working for this Alates fellow all along, and they wanted to do this. There was actually a real politique reason for it, and they wanted to do it as a way of uh, provoking him into war, or something like that, right? But the actual text gives us none of that. It just said he abused them, and so they cut up a young boy and cooked him as if he were one of the animals they usually brought back and fed it to him. And again, that's all the text tells us. That's all we have. Herodotus doesn't go into more detail with that. So doesn't... Can you not just see? Doesn't that just seem like... That could be a scene from, like, a modern horror movie, and you wouldn't make it clear to the audience why this happened. Because, you know, switching out of my role as movie director, for which I'm fantastically poorly qualified, or TV director, I guess, I don't know, that's a different term. That is all we have. And I think we look at that text and we... we want to make it about something else, and something else he can say is this is, this is just made up. This is just something Herodotus told to titillate his audience. Now, that could easily be true, right? Herodotus did make stuff up. But we don't know that either. That's just a guess. This is a story he's clearly heard. We don't know if it's true or not. And, and, and so, to my mind, we, what we're looking at here, our epistemic relation to it, is so much more of the modern horror movie than of the action movie or the sort of real politique movie, in that we don't know if this is real or not. You know, it seems so, like, weird and out there that it must be just made up, right? But we don't know that. And if it is, why this? You know, I mean, you can explain this within, like, the domination narrative in that people like to dominate and humiliate those under them, and these... Scythians were feeling humiliated and they wanted to get payback. That's intelligible enough. But but why why was this that their their approach? Why is that what they settled on? I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure, right? If your boss humiliated you at work, you might like plot some way to get your revenge, but this isn't what would go through your head. So anyway, let's continue with the story, because this is going to be the instigating act of, of, the, of the drama. Quote, After this, since Aealtes would not give up the Scythians to Syaxeres at his demand, there would be a war between the Midians, the Lydians, and the Medes for five years. Each won many victories over the other, and once they fought a battle by night. End quote. So, in other words, the Scythians have, have run off to um, um, the... the Lydian Empire, which is like modern-day Turkey, and the Medes, who um, their king's just been fed a young boy unknowingly, is furious, and he says, give them back, and they won't, so they go to war. Now, one thing to note here with war is I think our image might be of sort of a conventional set-piece battle, where you've got like two big blocks of men, and they kind of like slam into each other and something that we moderns find quite difficult to visualise might have happened. A lot of modern historians have said this, this might be much more like 
mounted. Apparently both of these peoples were very strong on horseback. You know, we were hearing about how they were training people to ride horses and shoot bows and arrows. And it might be much more like skirmish warfare, where you're like, you know, you're on the plain or in the forest or whatever, and you're just searching for them out, and there's bands of different people scattered everywhere, and then suddenly you bump into one and you're in contact, and you're firing arrows against each other. And again, wouldn't that be something that you could well incorporate into a sort of modern horror setting? Although, again, according to the text, it says once they fought a battle by night... So maybe that does sound a bit more like a conventional set-piece battle. Although, again, a conventional set-piece battle, and I'm going to discuss this more in the next episode, you know, the conventions of how we portray them now are, one, probably not very accurate, but two, not the only set of conventions that you could use to depict that what has to be an incredibly psychologically intense experience, to put it mildly, right, for the people, the people involved. So, returning to Herodotus, quote, They were still warring with equal success when it happened, an encounter which occurred in the sixth year, that during the battle the day was suddenly turned to night. Thales of Miletus had foretold this loss of daylight to the Ionians, fixing it within the year which the change did indeed happen. End quote. So what's he talking about? The day was suddenly turned to night. So you can say, well, this is just some weird bullshit that Herodotus is making up, right? But Actually, we have a rare observable fact here, in that in the time he's talking about, there was actually a full solar eclipse in this region at this time. And apparently, um, it had been predicted by some Greek, but the, the, the Lydians and the Medes didn't know that. Apparently, this was a huge, huge shock to them. Now, of course, um, modern astronomers have no difficulty at all in um, going back and working out exactly when in human history there have been full solar eclipses. And apparently there was one in this time and this place. So, like, you know, this just again cuts against this sort of cynically just flattening out all of history to the most mundane interpretation. Because I think if you had that without the sort of modern scientific proof of it now, it would be very easy to sort of say this is an embellishment or a dramatic detail, as a lot of people have said about the story of feeding the boy to the king. But, you know, often when we can verify these things, it's the weirdest stuff that, that ends up being verified. And just imagine this. You've got two lines of people, and I'm going to get later into this series about how we visualise ancient conflict and, like, what this actually looked like, and it turns out that that's actually really hard, and that there's all sorts of different ideas about, like, what these ancient battles actually looked like, and we kind of don't really know what's right, but at any rate, you have a lot of people in quite a confined space um, really killing each other up close. So whether it's more the sort of skirmishy form of warfare, where you're, like, shooting arrows at each other, but there's still a bit of a gap, or, or like, you're, you're, you're really having infantry contact and 
you know, there is someone in your face trying to kill you with an edged weapon, and you're trying to do the same. Which, you know, these battles were quite short. They're often, like, only an hour or a few hours long. But they, as opposed to, like, modern wars, which can be years and years and years and years, right? But still, that has to be one of the most psychologically intense experiences that it's possible for a human being to go through. And as it's happening, as they saw it, they don't know what an eclipse is, the day turns to night. In a pre-modern, pre-scientific age, where people believe in direct interventions from the gods. Like, what does that look like? And we know that this is real. <laughs> like, or, like we've, or we're very confident that this is real. We know there was an eclipse at this point. Do you not just wish, like, somehow, a historically, they, they had photography? That we could see some video of this? And what do you do if you're... This is something that, that certainly has never happened before to anyone there, and may not ever have happened before to anyone else in human history. Well, according to Herodotus, the two sides break apart. Like, they actually disengage from each other. Which, again, must be really hard to do if it's someone, like, in your face trying to kill you with an edged weapon, that you all step back from each other. And the battle stops. No one wins. They just, they just disengage. And apparently, everyone just sort of agrees. This means the gods want us to make peace. And they do. And they um, have sort of like, I guess you'd say, like an international summit. It's not just like in the moment they stop. They stop. They have like this international summit, and they get independent observers in. I'm sort of using modern language. And there's a delegation from some of the other different key players, so like Babylon comes in, and the Babylonians send a general called Nabonidus, um, and he's going to come back into our story later. And you almost might think of like the way uh, President Clinton sits down with the Israeli and Palestinian leaders at Camp David and sort of says, okay, I'll, I'll act as the mediator there. Um, that's not to, to endorse the, the role the US has always played, by the way. Um, and so the Babylonians do that, and they're like, okay, let, let's, let's make a deal. And they do. The two leaders, one of whom, if we're to believe Herodotus, had a pretty legitimate grievance to, to starting this war. Hey, give me back those cannibals who fed me one of my boys. You know? Um, they sit down and they make peace. And just as a final little detail that I would have in my sort of contemporary, epistemically murky, unnervingly unsure, like, horror series that I'd do on this, they, they make the compacts in ways that we would understand. So they sort of marry some nieces and nephews off to each other, shore up the bonds of friendship, all of that, you know. One degree less likely to attack someone if they're, you know, married into your family or so the thinking goes. And we all sort of understand that, especially from the European Middle Ages. But then they cut their skin of their arms. And the two, the two kings cut the skin of their arms and they lick each other's blood. And Herodotus tells us this is how they swear compacts with each other. And I would just have that in as a scene in my movie with just no explanation. Like, that you'd just be to the audience to work out what that one was about. And you can tell I like this history and I get excited by it. Um, but doesn't that just seem to you, like, that just that little story I've told, it's three paragraphs in Herodotus, 
isn't that the plot for a sort of contemporary horror movie right there? Couldn't you make something great with that? Or if we're putting it within the whole narrative that I'm going to do in this series, maybe like the first episode of the second season of my ancient Near East spooky Game of Thrones thing that I've been talking about. And so then let's let's go to the next part of the horror experience. And I described this as, this is actually sort of what sold me on, on modern horror, is the idea of the experience doesn't end. Once you've seen the movie, you go, well, wait, what was that about? So what was that story about? What are we to make of that? What are our, what are our takeaways as a modern reader when we read something like this? Well, I guess the first thing to ask, and you, you always ask this of horror movies, right, is, is, this, is this supposed to be real? Or is this supposed to be like a character's hallucination or something? Is this real? Or is this something Herodotus made up? And I think the only answer to it is we don't know. Although the most dramatic detail is confirmable. And again, this is sort of what I, what I like about the ancient world. It's, 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 it's like a detective work. You know? Like, what do we know about this? Well, we have our primary source, Herodotus. We have the confirmable event, the eclipse, and we do have independent sources saying that there was a war between the Medes and the Lydians at this point. So the broad contours of the story are true. Are some of the details true? Was the instigating event really this sort of act of unintentional cannibalism? We don't know. And, like, you can sort of make something of it that's interesting even if it's not, because, as we'll see through this story, a lot of the, the sources seem to portray this period after the fall of the Assyrian Empire as quite a dark and disturbed time. And that's kind of interesting in and of itself. But then, on the other hand, what if it is true? Well, if we take it as true, then there's a number of different, like, frameworks we can apply to it, right? But let's, let's just take a couple of the ones that um, I set up in the last episode. If we sort of look at it through this neo-Machiavellian uh, domination theory point of view, then the instigating inst- incident um, where the king gets mad because they didn't get anything on the hunt and then they're like, you know what, we're going to feed a child to him. Well, there's sort of a narrative you can tell there, right? Is that it tends to be a consistent facet of those in power, that they use that power to dominate and humiliate the people beneath them. But this isn't only wrong, it's irrational, because people get furious when they're humiliated, and they behave completely irrationally in their anger at it. And that would sort of map on, right? If there's nothing else going on behind this, then maybe, you know, we should just take it at face value. And he just felt like humiliating these people because they didn't get something on the hunt. And they were so mad about this that they committed this appalling act. That's a coherent narrative. Now, how far that narrative goes to the Battle of the Eclipse? That seems less clear to me. Like, I'm not sure how I'd make sense of it within that narrative. You could, I guess, do a sort of pragmatic, cynical narrative of it all. Maybe the, the you know, initial instigation was all arranged by the Lydians, and they sort of wanted this all along. 
maybe you, there's maybe a reader for Rodotus where, like, they sort of know they're going to get safe haven there, so maybe it was something that sort of Game of Thrones style was set up, although we don't have direct evidence of that. And then what about the Battle of the Eclipse? Well, you know, you can say maybe initially they both went to war thinking they had something to gain, but after six years of war, you know, they realised and they needed an excuse and the Eclipse happened to provide it. Like, sure, that's a narrative, that fits the facts as well. And also, maybe there's a thing where, like, the leaders, you know, who are, we know, cynical and self-interested and so on, they don't really believe that this thing was a sign from the gods. You know, after all, they could, you could equally interpret the, the eclipse as saying, oh, that, that means God wants our side to win, right? Like, soothsayers throughout history have had a long track record of sort of interpreting signs in that way, right? But maybe the, the men who, in the army, who were religious, they were so terrified by this that they just sort of were like, oh, yeah, shoot, we, we better stop fighting, we insist on peace. And the leaders just sort of, decided that the cynical, rational thing to do was to go along with it. Although you assume, apparently there was some sort of, like, peace conference. That must have taken a while to arrange, particularly in the ancient world, right? Where messages go as fast as a horseman. So, like, the, the men must have stayed shook and stayed, you know, in that for a while, but that's also not how... A lot of these ancient Near Eastern kings behaved. They didn't take orders from their armies. Their armies took orders from them. Thank you very much. Even sometimes when maybe they should have listened to the mood of the men, they kind of didn't. And, like, that sort of contradicts um, domination theory a little bit, right? But what if, and just hear me out on this, what if they actually believed it? You know, that. The, the kings would often be on the battlefield themselves, and even if they weren't there, you know, they would have heard it from all of their men. The entire army didn't agree to make this thing up. Um, maybe they really just thought, you know, this is the god, gods, telling us we need to knock this off. And it was actually just sincere. Maybe that's the explanation. And there seems to be a resistance to this idea that, yeah, maybe they just did, but again... In a pre-scientific age, where, you know, they have no idea what an eclipse is. I think that the standard view of cosmology at this time, which we can see in the Bible as well, is that the sky is a filament. It's like like a sort of transparent layer, and there's waters above it. Um, and the gods are, you know, all around the world. The gods are in nature. And so, is it that crazy to think, yeah... Yeah, this happened, and they both just seem to sort of agree this is, this is what the gods, the gods meant by it. What about a Marxist view of this? Now, I will say, I tried and tried, and I could not think of a story in my head that started with the means of production and ended with child cannibalism and the Battle of the Eclipse. If you can think of that story, more power to you. And, and please do send it to me. I'd love to, love to hear what that sounds like. Um, but I was thinking about this, and this analysis isn't really unique to me, by the way. Um, but I think there is a structural story we can tell that sort of explains what's going on in this, um, what, what we call like civilizational ecosystem in the ancient Fertile Crescent, that does sort of put 
that story that we just heard, as wild as it is, in some sort of context. But I'm going to have to make a bit of a switch from orthodox Marxism. I'm going to have to take my fundamental structuring device to not be economic or not be primarily economic, but to be military. Now, a certain amount of, like, hyperventilating drivel is talked about ancient warfare, and I think sometimes people can get too excited by it. And so I'm going to try and avoid that to the best of my ability, but I'm probably not going to avoid it completely, because it is just really interesting. And it does impact the sort of ideological stories that I'm, I'm exploring here. But... Here's one one fact I'd like to start about, because, you know, like I said, we actually don't know as much as we think we do sometimes about what ancient warfare actually looked like. But one fact um, that I think we can be reasonably confident in, and this appears to be true from the first armies all the way through to the Gunpowder Age, is that when we think about ancient warfare, we think about set-piece battles, where you get thousands of thousands of people lined up on either side, and then those two lines sort of go into each other and something happens, right? Those definitely happened, and I will be exploring some of them later. But actually, the vast majority of set-piece conflicts in the ancient world and in the medieval world were sieges. And this was definitely true of this period as well. And if you think about it, that just kind of makes sense, right? Because to do the set-piece battle, both sides have to be convinced that they can win it. If I've got 10,000 men, and my opponent has 100,000, all other things being equal, I'm not going to engage in a set-piece battle. And both sides have to sort of agree to show up, as it were. No, if I have 10,000 men and my opponent has 100,000, I'm going to build a big-ass wall and sit behind it. And that's what they did. And that's what most of these conflicts looked like. Now, the thing about sieges, which I think we have a hard time in, in a sort of post-gunpowder age thinking about, is how decisive an advantage that gave defenders. And all of these ancient cities, by the way, would do this, like, yeah, Babylon, um, the, the Nineveh that we just talked about being sacked, um, had huge, huge stone or bitumen walls around them, like incredibly thick. Like you could often drive chariots around the walls, they were that wide, and really, really tall. And if you have even a few people at the top of them, that just basically makes it impossible. Like you see in movies, they throw a few ladders up and they all scream and they charge up there. You know, a very small number of people can hold off a much larger number of people. There was a case in, um, I'm recalling this from memory, but in the Wars of the Roses in, in the English Civil War, um, where the wife of one of the particular lords, while her husband's away fighting the war, um, finds their castle getting attacked and is able to successfully defend it against a small army with the knights she had on hand, all five of them. That's it. She was successfully able to hold out against 500 people with five people. Like, that's how decisive an advantage it is to be defending on a wall in the pre-gunpowder age. 
Now, people did take cities. So say you're, you're the person with the 100,000 army, and you're seeing a, a fortified city with these incredibly impressive fortifications. Like, the sort of earthworks that they were able to put up in this period are mind-blowing. And I encourage you to, to, to look at um, some of the ones that still survive, as well as um, some, like, recreations of them. And just imagine that you were someone who, even with superior numbers on your side, you had to take that. There's sort of two ways you can do it. You can starve them out, or you can do a direct assault. Starve them out is you just, you do that. Now, that's, of course, incredibly time-consuming. Like, a well-supplied city can last years and years and years. There's been cases where, like, ten years a city stays under siege. Think about the, the Iliad, right? That's what that's about. That's primarily about a siege. Or you can go and actually just try and take this thing by force. Now, the way they would try and do it by force back then, and we have a lot of, like, um, stone reliefs and artwork depicting this, would be essentially like the way they built the pyramids. So, you know, you know the pyramids in Egypt, and people are like, oh, aliens must have done it or something. And the actual answer that, that most historians and archaeologists agree on now is, no, it wasn't aliens. It was just they spent an incredible amount of man-hours on it. Mind-blowing. And people would just haul the stones by hand on, like, sleds or on rollers, and they would just build these huge earthworks, these huge ramps up the side of the pyramid to get the stones up there. And that's very similar to the way that they would take these walls. They would build huge earthworks, so they just had a level incline, slowly bringing them up to the walls. Now, of course, there's an added difficulty in siege warfare, that isn't there in the pyramids, which is the people who are, you know, watching you build this thing, they're not just going to stand by, they're going to be shooting arrows and throwing rocks at you. And it appears that the way they did this was really technologically advanced. They'd have big screening devices, so that there'd be, like, wooden protection as they worked to build this thing, which, of course, then the people in the city would try and burn down and so on and so forth. Um... But the point about this that I'm driving to is this was incredibly labour-intensive. And what I sort of wonder is if there isn't like a sort of tipping point an army can reach whereby you have enough people to do this. So the Assyrians clearly did. When we were starting with Ashurbanipal and his campaigns, it's like this and this and this and this and this. Like in a single year. It looks like he's going and just taking out a dozen towns. And you assume, by the way, Ashurbanipal could field armies of 150, 200,000 men. These are incredibly big armies for the pre-modern age. And it doesn't appear, by and large, that he was fighting set-piece battles. I mean, the records are spotty, but again, if I'm some Elamite general and I have a few thousand men, I'm not taking on 150,000, right? I'm going to go behind these cities that have huge great walls, I'm going to hole up there. But apparently, like, Ashurbanipal's army was that big and that good that it didn't matter. And the, and the good thing matters as well. One thing that does seem to be consistent through ancient warfare, you see this with the Assyrians, you'll see it with the Macedonians later, you'll see it definitely with the Romans later, is that armies that are permanent and are continually in use tend to beat armies that aren't. And that just kind of makes sense, right? They're more practiced, they can just, like, do it better, you know? 
Um, so think about, like, some sort of physical contact sport today, like um, uh, rugby or American football or something like that, right? If you have two teams that are, like, equally strong, but one side trains an hour every day and the other never trains at all, then the side that trains every day is going to be decisively victorious basically every time. And it looks like something was true like that for these ancient armies. And that goes for sort of set-piece battle where you're doing hand-to-hand combat. But I think it would also go doubly, triply for doing something as huge as the essential engineering project that was required to breach these sorts of city walls. Because if you think about it, it's not just that you need a huge army to put in the amount of labour to build this thing. It's also got to be organised effectively. You've got to know what you're doing. It's actually quite a technically complex thing. And so if you have an army that has that sort of procedural knowledge, and it's not like you turn up at the town, it's like, okay, we need to build up a ramp. How do we do this? Um, who's, who's doing what? Who's going where? Is you go up and you've done this a dozen times before. So it's like, okay, cool. Let's get the sappers in. Let's get the engineers in. We're going to do two big inclines on that side, and then we're going to start building siege towers on this side. And the siege towers, you've already got units assigned for it. People are trained to do it. You've got, like, the leaders and the managers who know how to set it up. And it's just a well-oiled machine that sort of snaps into focus. Now, the problem with that is, and this is sort of why I say this is, like, quasi-Marxist, is to put that together requires that sort of... That army, that permanent army, requires an incredible amount of surplus. So the way a lot of armies are put together in this time is you just round up all the local lords who have horses, that's your cavalry. And then, if it's not harvest time, you can grab a bunch of farmers from the fields and try and conscript them in. But there's going to be a harvest to go back to. So in other words, if you want to have a year-round standing army, which again tends to be the type of armies that decisively win in the ancient world, for obvious reasons. You need to be, have such a level of um, civilizational complexity that you're extracting enough surplus from the farmers and merchants and whatever that you can feed them and equip them and pay them all year, right? And this is apparently quite a big hurdle to carry because there were just less people in the world back then, right? And that the methods of, as a Marxist would say, extracting surplus are less sophisticated. The economies aren't as advanced, the technologies not as advanced. So here's my sort of theory, is the Assyrians got to the point where they sort of reached that tipping point and they had enough surplus, economic surplus that is, where they could support these large standing armies. And then it's kind of like a domino effect. Once you've got it, anyone else can fall before you because no one's going to stand up to you like in the field. No one's going to challenge an army that outnumbers them 10 to 1. But the traditional defense against that doesn't work either because they're big enough and cohesive enough that they can just roll over cities as well. Right? And the standard thing they do, by the way, this isn't unique to the Syrians, is if you're going to make us go to all of this work of like building these huge inclines and siege towers and stuff where you shoot arrows at us and try to put boiling tar on us and stuff, if, if you make us do that, we're going to kill all of you once, once we get in. That was a pretty 
or, or very least kill a lot of you and deport more of you. That was like a very standard thing. The Assyrians had clearly reached that tipping point, but once they fall and the world fragments into all these different powers, I sort of wonder if maybe nobody had the capacity for that anymore. Or at least they didn't have the capacity that the big, sort of powerful players like Babylon and Lydia, they didn't have the capacity to do that to each other. Right? They would try, but there, there was never a... Tr it was always quite difficult to get a knockout blow, because you wouldn't quite have the manpower and expertise and the ability to maintain a standing army that's necessary to just crush them in a siege. You'd have much more balanced armies, so you would have these sorts of confrontations in the field, but no one can really get out on top, because to get out on top, you need to reach that tipping point of surplus, where you can just take one city after the next after the next, like the Assyrians did. But to get to that point of surplus, you need to conquer a big chunk of the known world, which you can't do without having that ability in sieges. So in other words, to get the, the sort of military resources you would need to capture the economic resources, you would need those economic resources to start with. So you're sort of in a catch-22. Does that make sense? Now, against that background, you know, the details are wild and crazy, but this isn't too strange for history. But I think that story can sort of start to make more sense where you've got people trying and vying out for power against each other, but the whole sort of mechanics of the system structurally constrain any one of these great players from coming out on top. Now, the fact that none of the great players can do this, none of them can work out a way... I mean, you assume what they, they sort of might be trying to do is put the old Assyrian Empire back together again. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're happy to rule in their own countries, but they're continually going to war with each other. Um, if they can't do that, though, if they can't recreate this sort of continental empire that used to exist, there's definitely a lot of smaller states around them that can be. And one of the smaller ones that's just going to get swept up in this conflict, these conflicts between the great powers, is um, Judah. Now, this is one, obviously, that we sort of consider a lot more, but this is just an example of what's going on all the time. So around the same time, actually, as the events we're exploring, the Babylonians are finally going to have had enough of um, the, the Jews being difficult with them, and they're just going to go and take them out. And our source on this is in the Bible, so this is uh, Jeremiah 39, uh, verse 1. Quote, in the ninth year of Zechariah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zechariah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. End quote. So just again there, even though this is a minor player, it still looks like it took them two years to take the city, which again gives you an idea of how difficult it is to take these cities, and that nobody at this time has the capacities that the Assyrians did to just bulldoze one after another after another in, in um, a long campaign. Um, so Jeremiah tells us that the um, Judean king 
fled, but the Babylonian army pursues him and they catch up to him. So, quote, they captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Ribbelah in the land of Hamath, and where he pronounced a sentence on him. There, also at Rabbelah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zechariah before his eyes, and also killed all the nobles of Judah. He put out Zechariah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people, and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nazaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried into exile in Babylon the people who remained in the city along with those who had gone over to him, and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan, commander of the guard, left behind him, in the land of Judah, some of the poor people who owned nothing. And at that time he gave them vineyards and fields." End quote. So, again, as we saw in our last episode, what happened there is a very common practice, and what we saw the Assyrians doing when they put down rebellions, is something that's clearly carried over into this period, and it won't only be the Jews who suffered it, but the sort of very over-the-top torture and punishment, the, the killing all of the political elites, and then transporting big chunks of the population somewhere else. That's something that the Assyrians did pretty regularly as a tool of power politics, and all of these different successor states vying for power, they're all doing it now, if, if not always quite to each other, but to certainly the, the, the smaller powers that are around them. But what that means then is if you are one of these smaller powers, the world post-fall of the Assyrian Empire might be an even worse place to live than under the Assyrian Empire. Because under the Assyrian Empire, you submit, you pay your taxes, you become a vassal state, you'll live, you know? And then, yes, it's going to be pretty gnarly if you decide to rebel. But in this new world, there's multiple powers doing this to everyone, and you've only got to fall afoul of one of them. And what if two decide to go to war? Who do you side with? If you get it wrong, this could be you. And so, if I'm right about what's keeping them stuck there, this would have been a pretty bad period for most people. And a lot of our sources seem to present it this way. But then how do you get out of it? How do you break that catch-22? Well, it seems to be through most of human history, the simple answer is that you don't. You know, most of the time, you know, Roman Empire falls, you get a long period where civilizational complexity is at a lot lower watermark. It takes a long time to pull back out from that. That once these things break, you can't just put them back together again. Except, a generation later, someone's going to. So let's fast forward about 30 or 40 years after the Battle of Eclipse, and a lot of the key players um, will sort of come down. So um, Nabonidus, the Babylonian general who brokered the peace, he's now king of Babylon. And it sort of looks like he wasn't like in the line of succession. He was just sort of the guy who was around. And he's going to do some interesting stuff. And the Median king, Syaxares, he's going to have died and been succeeded by his son, Astyages. 
and then up in Lydia, so modern-day Turkey, there'll be another there'll be a few different rulers, but then another ruler on the throne called Croesus, who we get the phrase rich as Croesus from, because if you've heard that, I mean, maybe that's a British thing, but rich as Croesus, um, because he was apparently very, very rich, and indeed the Lydians were apparently the first people to invent uh, metal coinage. Some people have disputed that, said other people did it first, but apparently they did, and that's what they were known for. So, you've got Croesus, who's rich as, up in Lydia, modern-day Turkey. You have the sort of Neo-Babylonian Empire, which has expanded sort of modern-day Iraq, but it's expanded to take a bunch of other kingdoms, such as uh, Judah and Syria and so on. So that's probably the most powerful player in the game. And then you've also got the Medes under um, this Astyages guy. Now, I think if you'd have caught, talked to any of those kings, Nabonidus, um, Croesus, Astyages, at the time, and told them what was about to happen, there's, there's absolutely no way, not that they wouldn't have believed you, that they would have even seen it as credible. So, you know, when we read our histories back, there's sort of signs and portents as to what's coming, and it's foretold and so on. And I think most historians would say, this is just stuff people have put in. It's, it's very easy to see what's coming when you, in fact, know what's coming. But we've been setting this world up for a little bit now, and just imagine you're sort of in the place of, of one of these kings, and sort of, you know, see it from a domination point of view, a Marxist point of view, even sort of an idealist worshipping the gods point of view, and imagine you tell them, in about a decade's time, all of this is going to be reunited into um, something that is not only, you know, equal to the Assyrian Empire, but greater than it, that extends to a greater extent. We're not, we're not only going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, we're going we're gonna to grow it as well. It's going to be back new and better in really not that long a time span at all. I really don't think they would have believed you. I don't think, I think they would have thought that's, you know, it took the Assyrian Empire hundreds and hundreds of years with many very, very gifted and talented kings in succession from another to build up that power. Surely no one's going to be able to come and put it all together again in, in a decade, decade and a bit. Um, but say they did believe you. I think their next question would be, Okay, well then, which of us did it? Was it was it me? Was it um, Astyages? Like, which of the great powers managed to knock out the other two? And if you told them, oh no, it's none of you guys. It's some tiny vassal state on the edge of the world that most of you haven't even heard of. Uh, would you believe that? That's just that's that's crazy, right? And, oh yeah, by the way, on top of all of that, this is going to be done largely non-violently. No. This is just not real, right? So, this rather incredible story that's coming, I think we can start with Astyages, the king of the Medes. This people are ruling what used to be the Elamite kingdom that just got just smashed 
by the Assyrians. Sort of like modern-day Iran. Roughly. Now, there is a tradition that Astyages knew Cyrus as a child, and that his future sort of greatness, as it were, was prophesied to him, and he tried to have him killed, almost in a sort of like King Herod trying to have Jesus killed type of way. This comes much later, and our sort of main source on this is Xenophon, who's writing a highly fictionalised account of this hundreds and hundreds of years later. Um, so I'm just going to discount that story, and I think most historians would discount it. Um, but there's one interesting little nugget from it, that the guy Astyages sends to, to sort of kill the baby Cyrus is one of his generals called Harpagus, and he eventually finds out that Harpagus didn't do it. And this is the story Herodotus tells us about that, is that he confronts Harpagus about it, and Harpagus says, yeah, I, I, let, I let the kid live. Sorry. And Astyages is just quite cool, and he says, oh, you know, I'm actually glad you did that. I, fe I felt bad about killing that boy, and all is forgiven. And so I pick up again in Herodotus, and talking about history as a horror movie, this is how he says Astyages dealt with that. Quote, when Harpagus heard this, he did obsessence and went home, greatly pleased to find that his offence had come to the needful end, and that he was invited to dinner in honour of this fortunate day. Coming in, he bade his only son, a boy of about thirteen years of age, to go to Astyages' palace and do whatever the king commanded, and in his great joy, he told his wife all that had happened. But when Harpagus's son came, Astyages cut his throat, and tearing him limb from limb, roasted some and boiled some of his flesh, and the work being finished kept in all readiness. So, when it came to the hour for dinner, and Harpagus was present along with the rest of the guests, dishes of sheep's flesh were set before Astyages and the others. But Harpagus was served the flesh of his own son, all but the head and hands and feet, which lay apart and covered in a basket. When Harpagus seemed to have eaten his fill, Astyages asked him, Are you pleased with your meal, Harpagus? Exceedingly well pleased, Harpagus answered. Then those whose business it was brought him the covered basket, and the head and the hands and the feet of his son. And they stood before Harpagus, and bade him uncover, and take of them what he would. Harpagus did so, uncovered, and saw what was left of his son. This he saw, but he mastered himself, and did not show signs of distress. Astyages asked him, Do you know what beast's flesh you have eaten? Yes, he said. I know, and all that the king does is pleasing to me. With this answer, he took the rest of the flesh and went to his house, proposing then, I suppose, to collect and bury it all. Thus did Astyages punish Harpagus. End quote. So again, looking at this you know, separated by 26 centuries, what are we to make of it? 
Is this real? Did this really happen? Or is this just a, a trope that Herodotus likes? Because it's, it's very similar to the story that launched that war a generation or so ago. And this is a Greek writer, by the way. So let's be real, the Greeks would probably have had a certain level of ethnic contempt for, for people living in this area of the world. Is this sort of how they described people they saw as barbarians? We just don't know. Or, you know, is it, is it, if it's not a literary trope, is this actually something people used to do to one another? What's, what's weirder? You know? I think what it definitely sets up, and a lot of this literature sets up, is this idea of Astyages as a bad guy. And there's sort of a literary function to that, right? If, if something's going to happen to him, then, then that's a good moment for the audience, where they're like, ah, oh, he got his comeuppance. But perhaps it also sort of signals at something else, which is the, the sort of powerful political elites around him at the time really didn't like him. I mean, some guy has unknowingly fed you your own son? It's even more horrifying than the initial story, right? And we just don't know, like, what are you t to make of that? And again, this is why I say I often experience ancient history much more in the horror movie mode than in the, in the real politique mode. Now, what I don't mean is that, like, ancient history is necessarily more evil and awful and violent. There's, there's evil and awful and violent things in the contemporary world. We just think about it differently, and we think about the appropriateness of violence differently. So this is absolutely unthinkable to us, but dropping a drone strike that might kill some children is something we've normalised. So it's not a moral judgement. It's, it's an epistemic one. It, it's, you encounter this, and it's so strange. Like, so unknown. Did this happen? I've absolutely no idea. I don't think anyone really knows. People say, oh, this clearly didn't happen, and then don't really give a reason. Or they say, oh, yeah, this is clearly historical. Now, what's coming, we can verify from a number of different sources, and archaeology, and, and stuff like that. Um, why it happened, though? You know, the negative stuff has the horror movie connotation. Sometimes the positive stuff does as well. So, in more recent history, the Medes have been beefing with the Babylonians. And, you know, it was one of these wars like the war with the Lydians that we started with that's had a lot of fighting and casualties, but it's not been decisive. It's been locked into this same sort of mechanic where these big players can't, really deliver these knockout blows to each other. The, the sort of, the defender in ancient warfare has such an advantage over the attacker. In fact, the Babylonians, not content to merely build big city walls, actually build a huge wall called the Median Wall to, to just block them. Think, think like um, the Great Wall of China or um, in the UK, Hadrian's Wall to keep the, the Romans, to keep the Scots out. They just build a huge wall like that along the shortest point between the Tigris and the Euphrates, um, which is an incredible. You know, we think of ourselves sometimes, I think, as, like, smarter than ancient people. But I wonder, like, 
without all the resources we have, without computers or anything like that, could we organise engineering projects on that scale? Or on the scale of what was necessary that the Assyrians did to take these cities? You know, in an age where to write something down, you'd put it in a clay tablet and fire it. And you'd have no shared Google Docs, no planning stuff. You know, none of that. Could we do stuff like this again? Not sure that we could. But anyway, the Medes and the Babylonians have been beefing. And there's a couple of different versions of this story. I'm just going to give you one of them. Um, but they all kind of boil down to the same thing anyway. Which is, the Babylonians, to make trouble for the Medes, start trying to encourage many of the sort of vassal kingdoms to rebel against them. So again, as I've been saying, there's these great powers, but they often have a number of smaller kingdoms. So they're, they're, they're empires within their own right. They often have a number of smaller, like, kings, or sort of, like, in, in, in the medieval, early modern period, they're sort of duchies and so on, or feudal lords who still loosely answer to the crown. Um, so the Babylonians are sort of sending messages, being like, hey, hey, um, if you rebel against Astyages, yeah, we'll, we'll support you, we'll back you up. But it's kind of cynical. They're just trying to make trouble for them, and they, they, they get this one guy, um, King of Asham, who we have not, and if you haven't heard of this at this point, nobody else has either, who is king of a small people called the Persians, who, again, we have not heard of up until this point. Um, completely minor player, Apparently, like, some of the other great powers don't even know who, who they are. And he's sort of... If the Babylonians are on one side of the Median Empire, he's on the other. So the Babylonians have this idea that they're like, if he rebels, Astyages will have to send his army to go crush him. And while he's doing that, we can come in and sort of get him, get him while they're unprepared. Pretty sort of classic military strategy. So... This guy, who they've just encouraged to rebel, is bait, essentially, right? Like, you know, the bait's meant to get eaten. Now, here's what's fascinating. Now, regardless of if we know whether that story is true or not, we do know that Harpagus is a real person. And Harpagus is the general that Astyages sends to go crush this little client king who's rebelling. Now. First of all, if that story is true, what on earth made you think that a guy whose son you fed to him was a good person to, to put in charge of your army? Machiavelli could have told you that wasn't a smart idea. And uh, one final note on this is, again, how little rational self-interest seems to capture any of this. Because, you know, the Babylonians' plan, that's sort of rational self-interesty. It's cynical, it's, um, it's the, very much the type of thing someone in a Game of Thrones show would do, right? But then, that they're feeding someone their own son, but keeping them around and still trusting them? That seems bonkers. And then also, why has this king of Ashan, Cyrus his name is, why has he rebelled? What does he think he's getting out of it? Because again, rebellions tend to end one way in the ancient world. And the kings and the nobles and the whatever, the people who do it, they will not be spared. They might get the worst punishment. So what's his rational 
self-interest in doing this. There doesn't really appear to be any, and we just the data isn't just that it just isn't there. Um so Cyrus rebels, Harpigus marches out to confront him and defects to him. Which again, you know, you might have seen coming, right? And Harpagus is going to stay with Cyrus through his whole career, and he's a documented historical person. And then together, they march back on Ebitana, the capital of the Median Empire. And, um, you know, Astyages is like, ah, well, that didn't work. But okay, I've still got most of my army with me. I'm going to go and take care of this and get rid of both of these guys in one fell swoop. And so he you know, goes out to, to confront this sort of newly galvanised rebellion. And apparently his army turns on him and his troops hand him over to Cyrus. So you've, you've got a defection and another defection, essentially. And then what happens next is so interesting and so out of the mould. Again, we've seen what happens to people who lose a war in this world, right? What's coming next? We all know what's coming next, right? Astyages, you sun-feeding jerk, you're going to be flayed alive. We're going to start resettling populations. We'll burn this city to the ground. Nope. Cyrus enters the city peacefully, treats its people well, and lets Astyages live. You, know, you go off to a nice retirement, marries his daughter. So he's now bought into, he's, he's married into the ruling family. And that allows a lot of the other lords and nobles and sort of political elites, as you were, to just come over to his side. Yeah, cool, this guy's the new king of the Medes. And you'll notice, by the way, that's where the Mede-Persian thing comes from. The Greeks would always call the Persians Medes. That wasn't quite right. It sort of looked like there was almost like a hostile takeover of the Medes by the Persians, but again, a non-violent one, which is fascinating. And then because he's established that, all of the other little vassal states and client kingdoms of the Median Empire, they just accept him as well. Now, I should say, there are historians who will challenge that somewhat rosy narrative. They'll say this was all just propaganda, and actually on the quiet after it was all done, he probably had a lot of these kings killed. Um. Maybe. You know, like, again, the sources that we have are the sources that we have. They're not to be completely trusted, but, you know, they are what they are. That's a fascinating little takeover, right? Now, it does not go unnoticed. So the Lydians, up in modern-day Turkey, they're going to get wind of this, and they're going to go, oh, this, this guy, yeah, might be a bit of a threat. Let's, uh... Let's see what we can do about this. And so Croesus sort of starts thinking, well, you know, this guy's, you know, might be a bit dangerous. Also, you know, does he really have all the army whatever behind him? This, this looks a bit weird. Maybe, maybe there's a chance for us here, right? And so he goes to an oracle, which are, you know, big features of the ancient world. Right? And the story goes, and again, who knows if this is true, goes to the oracle at Delphi. The reason he goes to the oracle at Delphi is Croesus is, he's what a New Yorker might term a piece of work. So he actually tested all of the oracles in the ancient world, and he sent them all 
a messenger to like 150 of them and was like, what am I going to be doing on this exact moment of this exact day? And did something really random. And apparently the only one to get it right was the Oracle at Delphi, which was the most prestigious one in the Greek world. And so you've got to kind of admire the, the sort of the thought process behind that, right? It's not atheistic, per se. We believe in the gods. But let's make sure we, like, like do an experiment here and work out which gods really are bringing the goods, you know? So anyway, he asks Delphi again and says, what's gonna, what's gonna happen if I go to war with Cyrus? And the answer you get, um, and this is very Delphic, if you go to war, a great empire will be destroyed. He's like, oh, you know, great, and you can see what's coming, right? A great empire was destroyed. His. But then again, maybe that's just something the oracle said. That could have, you know, you, you, you could be right either way, right? But he goes to war with Cyrus. This one isn't completely non-violent. There's um, a battle between the two armies that's apparently basically like a draw. Um... And then winter comes, and Croesus goes home for the winter. Let's all his allies know you've got to come back in the summer when, um, yeah, when, when, um, when this is all sorted. Um, Cyrus ignores that and pursues him through the winter, which is very dangerous to do. This is, this is like an aggressive commander here. And um, arrives at his capital virtually undefended. And there's... there's various sort of explanations as to what go on here. There's an account that one of the walls just happened to collapse. There's an account of a surrender. There's an account of, like, different stratagems. Like, Herodotus always has people winning by, like, some clever trick. So we don't know. But the result appears to be the same. You've got this very benevolent um, takeover. Not a lot of people to know people killed. And apparently, he let Croesus live. And not only that, but kept him on as an advisor. And again, there's people who say this is propaganda on Cyrus's part. You know, there, there is a bit on um, one of the records that we have that talks about him crushing uh, Croesus. Um, and then, you don't know, does crushing mean killing? You know, but we have other traditions that say he, he stayed on with him for a good long time. And this is going to be just a model that he's going to expand, which is just so counter how business is done in this world. And another part of the model is that, whereas the Assyrians would say, you have to accept our political system and you have to worship our gods, Cyrus is completely fine for people to worship their own gods. And he's actually completely fine for them to administer their local government, whichever way you want. You know, you, to be fair, you're going to have to sort of do that under a regional Persian governor that eventually become called satraps. And you're going to have to pay taxes to the Persians, right? But then, within those parameters, you know, your particular political elites, they want to stay in power? Fine. You know, your, your um, religious expression... However that goes, you want to do that? Fine. And again, going back to our first um, episode, where I said the two big sort of ideological pillars of this world are these sort of hierarchies and ancestries and lineages that these elites draw from, and religion, the temple, you know? And so Cyrus is very much just going to say, okay, I'm going to work with the grain of all of that.
So, what are we as students of ideology to, to make of all of that? It's definitely a very big change from how things were done under the Assyrians and how these sort of various uh, empires and dynasties that grew up after the Assyrians, how they behaved. It's definitely not the sort of rules that were being played by at the time. That's not to say that it's necessarily all that ideological or it's not motivated by an ideology of pragmatism, because, you know, I've been pushing back at various points against the sort of pragmatist explanation as a total blanket cover. But that's how most people read this, and it's not crazy. So the idea goes something like this. The Assyrians sort of proved that their way didn't work, in that the Assyrians would generally demand that people sort of uh, start worshipping their god Asher as the sort of primary god. When they conquered a subject people, they tended to behave very, very cruelly. And as a sort of, you know, domination theory would lead us to expect, people reacted really badly to this. I said, from a, from a rational self-interest point of view, there's not much to be said for keeping on rebelling every <laughs> ten years against the Assyrians when you, you know what's coming to you, and yet people kept doing it. But then there's the thought on the other side of that equation. If it's not super rationally self-interested for all of these subject peoples to keep rebelling, surely then it's also irrational for the Assyrians to keep on behaving in ways that keep prompting them to rebel. And so if you follow that thought to its logical conclusion, you kind of end up with Cyrus, right? What if, when, once we take over a territory, we, we go out of our way to make sure that everyone's, everyone's happy with this new arrangement? Who are the, who are the powerful people in the society that we, that we have to, to, to placate? And again, one thing to stress here is how much is this sort of an elite change of management versus sort of a genuine reflection of, like, the popular will? You know, when, when Cyrus is coming into these cities and doing all of this, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the elites, like the priests and the aristocracy and the hierarchy, or is he genuinely sort of acting for the people, as it were? And maybe we just don't really know, you know, we don't, almost definitionally, we don't really know what anyone who couldn't read and write thought about this, and even though these societies were quite literate relative to world history at the time, it was probably still only a small fraction of the population who would have been the more higher status part of the population who could read and write. So, in saying, you know, you can worship your own gods, you, know, you, you can manage your, your own cities however you want. Cyrus was also very flexible about, like, what the particular constitutional structure would be. You know, you pay your taxes, you stay quiet, you have to have a Persian, like, overall governor. But then, you know, within that framework, we can, we can set this up however you want. Now, this goes to a question. I've been using the word ideology the whole time. Are, are these people even ideological? Ideologies, after all, are mass things that incorporate, yes, elites, but also the whole population. How far did all of these beliefs trickle down? 
Maybe they didn't. Indeed, Michael Frieden, who I've been referencing in this, would say, really, you don't have political ideologies in the modern sense until the early modern period. Like, you need stuff like the printing press before you can have phenomena in the same way. But there's clearly something going on, some set of beliefs that are being appealed to. But it is interesting to note, there's an analysis of this, which is just something that's happening between elites, that elites, perhaps in, you know, these different empires at the time, have decided, well, this isn't working. We need to do something different. And maybe there's actually just quite a pragmatic explanation for this, in that Cyrus sees this opening, and that other apparent, you know, the religious leaders and the sort of traditional aristocracies of these cities just sort of recognise it and think, well, you know, look, what do we want at the end of the day? We, we want to be powerful, we want to be wealthy, we want to just sort of enjoy our lives, right? And this constant cycle of repression and backlashes against repression, like, you know, it's not helping us. Like, every time we lose, we get carted off and tortured and killed, and it's... You can imagine someone sort of saying that it's just bad business. It's just bad for business. It's just bad for business. And what can look like a very benevolent policy is just realpolitik. And to support that idea, it bloody worked. Like... I, I, I don't think there's anything to rival this in human history. By the time he dies, more than half of the human beings that live on Earth will live under Cyrus's rule. Just think about that. Half of the people who exist in the world is estimated. Don't ask me if the estimates are right, but it's credibly estimated. Half of the people on Earth will be under this structure that Cyrus is building. And he's going to build it in an incredibly short time span. I can't think of anything else like that in world history. And it lasts. The Persian Empire is going to last for another three centuries, longer than the United States has been around, to put it into context. And there will certainly be rebellions and difficulties throughout that time. His successor Darius is going to have to put down some rebellions over what looks like a sort of contested succession. There's always going to be problems at the border. They're going to be in a forever state of sort of subjugating Egypt and then Egypt getting autonomy again and so on and so forth. And of course, we all know that they're going to have problems with the Greeks, right? But it's doubtful, at least until the Macedonians become really powerful, that they ever really considered the Greeks as anything more than a series of annoying frontier disputes. You got, this, this is an empire that stretches from the Black Sea to India, you know? And it does seem remarkably stable over a long period of time. And before we get too carried away with a sort of benevolent interpretation of Cyrus, let's keep in mind that this is not a modern liberal we're dealing with. You know, I think we can say, judged relative to other empires at the time, the Persians were comparatively benevolent, but that's still judged relative to something. The Persians are still going to torture people to death and stuff. You know, like, if you challenge the great king's power or something, that's not going to end well for you. But this sort of 
almost industrialized violence that we have been seeing, they're going to be less... They're going to use that less. And I say less, not never. Like, they will still just destroy cities sometimes, um, particularly if they're persistently rebelling. But they'll always have a pragmatic approach with it. So for, like, the Assyrians... And by the way, like, this story can often... And it certainly gets framed by a lot of the histories where the Assyrians are bad guys, but this would have been true of the Greeks as well. If you make us put your town under siege, which is a hell of a thing to have to get over these huge high walls everyone's been building, and we have to build these ramps and get stuff dropped on us, and you make us do that, we're killing all of you. Or we're carting you all off into enslavement. And that happened to Greek cities as well, you know? This isn't something unique to, like, Eastern empires. It's, like, particularly, quote-unquote, barbarous. This is how everybody behaved. Persians kind of weren't like that. They would do that if they had to. But um, Dan Carlin has, uh, who I've, his podcast on the Assyrian, uh, sorry, the um, Achaemenid Persian Empire, is really good. It's really long, but so is this one, so, hey. Um, it's like, they're just, they, they're just very businesslike. And everyone else would be like, okay, we'll try and make a deal, but, like, if we have to fight you, we're going to kill you all. The Persians are like, let's make a deal. You know, look, let's, even in the movie 300, right, where the Persians are portrayed as these sort of very evil empire, there's, there's sort of a, a glimmer of historical truth in that. In the, the Darius in that, he's always saying to Leonidas, look, look, what do you want? You want to maintain your kingship? Keep it. You want to be prosperous? We'll give you money. And that is sort of how the Persians behaved. Hey, you're having difficulties with us? What do you want? Let's sort this out. But then they'd keep doing it. You know, and Dan Carlin has this good good skit where he's like, oh yeah, we'll turn down your, your, your thing, we'll turn down your offer. And then this huge Persian army starts descending on you. And instead of, oh, we're coming here to kill you, da 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 the Persians are marching with this huge army, a hundred times anything you can put together. And it's terrifying. And they're still going, how about that deal? Not sound good? Let's work it out. You need money? You want to stay in power? What's going on, buddy? And it's this um, definite carrot-and-stick approach, right? And the bottom line is, if it's more... The, the sort of proof is in the pudding. And if this just worked, then maybe that was just the motivation here. Like I say, I've been pushing back on the sort of everything's just sort of cynical self-interest narrative and trying to tease it and trying to, like, test other narratives, but let's not forget the sort of self-interest narrative is a very compelling narrative that explains a lot, right? And maybe Cyrus just sort of figures it out that, like, hey, toleration, I don't care. Like, people can do what they want, but it's just, it's just better policy. Now, that does violate other narratives. It definitely violates domination theory narrative. That's just not how elites behave, according to domination theory narrative. They're always going to be looking for opportunities to dominate people. But then again, it's not as if the Persians didn't do that. Once they have their empire established, we're going to have this famous practice that shows up in the Greek histories, where people have to bring earth and water as symbols of their submission, and they have to lie prone, flat on the floor, in front of the great king. Um, and there's huge reliefs in Persepolis, which is going to become, I think his successor builds Persepolis, I don't think it's Cyrus, 
um, this huge royal capital, the most just architecturally amazing thing in the world, and all of the, the stone reliefs on the side are going to be showing all of these different people with different costumes and dress and so on, coming and bringing earth and water and doing this symbolic submission before the great king. So it's not as if the, the sort of domination thing isn't there. And Cyrus also, from what we can tell, dude had a temper. Like, he wasn't... You know, a lot of you, you, people want to sort of think about him as like a historic, like, like a Gandhi-type figure, almost. Certainly in the, the Persian tradition, he's seen as like their George Washington, or, or even something a bit more than that. Perhaps the inventor of human rights is, is something that's been said about him, which is definitely ideologically inaccurate. Um, that, that concept did not exist back then, and the values that Cyrus appealed to were quite separate from that. But still, this is a guy who's apparently quite young, very handsome, apparently, is something that was always said about him. Um, but definitely had a temper. And, you know, this bit in our story, now that he's just conquered Lydia... He's going to be looking to mop up all of the areas around it and bring them into this new sort of monolith that he's stringing together. This is the moment we get back to my Enmedius Res starting point, where he's going to receive some embassies from over the sea concerned about what he may or may not do to the Greek cities on the Ionian coast. This is where we get this bit. And the Spartans come in and say, you know, you know, don't don't go messing with the the mainland Greeks, or you'll have us to deal with. And Cyrus is like, "Who in Christ are you guys?" Well, not Christ, obviously. We're we're in BC here, but he's just like, "No, who are you?" And apparently, there's a few anecdotes like that that show that this guy behaves like someone who calls himself the King of Kings, if that makes sense. So, overall, then, you know, while this can seem like a very very idealist moment. There's still definitely a sort of cynical, practical explanation, a realpolitik, shall we say, explanation of how all of this sort of fits in. Um, with that said, though, that sort of explains Cyrus's motivation to a degree, but what's happening on the other side of the deal? So in other words, let's just say that this is sort of like a restructuring of management, shall we say, of the elites at the time. You know, Cyrus comes along, but the, it, this isn't going to work unless the elites of all of these different cities and empires are like, oh yeah, we like that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go for this. What's happening on the other side that they're ready to do this? Because again, there's something very, even if you can put a sort of rational self-interest narrative to it, there's something very unusual about this, right? Like again, this just doesn't match how elites behave most of the time. And again, imagine we're doing like a Game of Thrones style. I've been saying I do this in the sort of contemporary horror style, but imagine, you know, we're into season two or three now, right? Perhaps, like, the first season of our Game of Thrones of the Fertile Crescent. I'm sure someone could come up with a better name. The first season could be, like, Assyria and the fall of Assyria, and it would end with the sack of Nineveh. And then second season, you'd have this sort of period of chaos between it all. And then we get into the third season, you've still got this chaos. And then suddenly, in a single episode, some dude just stitches it all back together again, and in a way that, like is 
largely non-violent. Even if you can put a cynical, sort of, or not even cynical, but just like a sort of pragmatic realpolitik motivation to that dude, wouldn't that one episode be incredibly tonally discordant with the rest of the series? Imagine if Game of Thrones had just suddenly ended like that. Some character who you have never heard of until this point, is just going to come along and sort it all out, and do it largely through compromise, and by being nice to people, and by being tolerant of people. Like, we thought the Game of Thrones ending was bad. Like, what would have the fans said if that had been the ending? So, even if, you know, like I say, people really want to believe because it just reflects the values and prejudices, frankly, of our own time, that it all sort of maps down to self-interest. I still think it's worth asking. You can, you can say Cyrus was just a canny operator. He, he just realised this was the best strategy, and maybe that's true. But what's happening on the other side that people are like, yeah, we'll go for that. We'll, we'll get rid of our own king, and we'll subject ourselves to you. And what, what, what were the motivations there? And now here, we can turn to Babylon. Because remember I said there were sort of three great powers in the world at the time. Maybe four if you count Egypt, but that's not going to really come into this story. There was the Medes, ruled by Astyages, this guy who apparently fed his general his own son. Um, and Cyrus is pretty easily taken care of him. There's um, the Lydians, famously rich Lydians. Um who Astyages went to war with at the beginning of this episode, uh, ruled by Croesus, and Cyrus has taken them out. But probably the single greatest power at the time is Babylon. Definitely the oldest of these great cities. Probably the most powerful. And that's still on the map. What's going on there? Well, Babylon is ruled by this Nabonidus guy who was the, if we remember, the person who, we think, brokered the peace after the Battle of the Eclipse. So all of these people kind of, like, tie together, in a way. Um, what was happening with his rule? Well, here's how um, the Persians are going to sum it up later. This is what they're going to say, sort of, um, led to what's coming. So, according to a text written when Cyrus was king of everything, um, quote, of Nabonidus, quote, by his own plan, he did away with the worship of Marduk, king of the gods. He continually did evil against Marduk's city. Daily he imposed the corvée upon its inhabitants, unrelentingly, ruining them all. End quote. So, the narrative that's going to emerge afterwards is that he was rejecting the traditional god of the city, the, the traditional Babylonian god is called Marduk. And also, he's like, I guess we would say he's overtaxing his population. So, that's like the Persian narrative about what happened and why there was a discontent with this ruler. Um, now, let's have a look at what they would have said in their own time, though. Like, what's he saying? Um, and we actually do have first-hand sources here again. Um, there's various things that have survived in inscriptions and stuff like that. 
from this period. And I'm going to read you um, from John Oates's book, Babylon, which I really like this book because it, it sort of covers the whole history of Babylon. Well, not the whole history, but big chunks of it. And it gets a lot of first-hand sources in. And it's quite grounded about, like, what we can say about them and what we can't, which sort of appeals to how I like to look at um, history. And so it covers each period quite briefly. But I'm just going to read you, actually, at length um, how it sets up um, Nabonidus. And it, you'll see there's some quite big chunks in here from primary sources. So it's, this is going to be something that gives you the primary source, sort of explains it a little and then gives you another primary source. And so I think I can just give you this without too much um, editorialising on my part. So this is, again, John Oates' Babylon, and this is how it covers Nabonidus. Nabonidus, 555 to 539, is often regarded as little more than an ageing antiquarian. Certainly his concern with the past, and with the restoration of proper rituals and embellishments of the ancient shrines of Summer and Akkad, bordered on obsessive. Yet this king was probably the distinguished general who negotiated the peace between Lydia and the Medes some thirty years before his accession. While the chronicle of his early years records an effective military policy, the new ruler was not of the family of Nebuchadnezzar. Quote, I am Nabonidus, who have not the honour of being a somebody. Kingship is not within me. End quote. His mother was Adaguppi, a long-lived Votress of the god Sin at Haran. Her biography is known from a stele found in 1956 and preserved as a paving stone, inscription side down, in the great mosque at Haran. Her career would be quite extraordinary, even in modern times. Not only did she survive four reigning monarchs in Assyria, but her life encompassed the whole of the Neo-Babylonian dynasty, down to its ninth year of its last king, her son, when she died at the ripe old age of 102, or possibly 104. Haran had long been an important commercial and religious centre, and was, as we remember, the final seat of Assyrian power. Indeed, there is some reason to suppose that Adaguppi's position derived from her relationship to the Assyrian royal family. One of Nabonidus's early acts was to begin the restoration of his mother's temple, which had been destroyed in the sack of Haran by the Medes and Babylonians, and was apparently still in Median hands. An interesting text records a dream in which Marduk instructed the new king to undertake the work at Haran. So, quoting now from the text, At the beginning of my reign, the gods let me see in a dream. In it there stood both Marduk the great lord, and sin, the light of heaven and earth. Marduk said to me, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, bring bricks on your horse and chariot, and build the temple of Ehul, the moon god's shrine, lit house of joy, that sin, the great lord, may take up his dwelling there. I replied to Marduk, chief of the gods, the Umanmunda, and just as a quick insert, that's sort of like barbarian hordes, and in this case he's referring to the Medes. So the Umanmanda are laying siege to the very temple that you have ordered me to build, and their armed might is very great. But Marduk said to me, the Umanmanda of whom you spoke, they and their country and all the kings who march at their side 
shall cease to exist. And, indeed, when the third year came to pass, Marduk made rise against them Cyrus, king of Ashan, his young servant, and Cyrus scattered the numerous Umanmanga with his small army, and captured Astyages, king of the Umanmanga, and brought him in fetters into Cyrus's land. This was the doing of the great lord Marduk, whose command cannot be changed. End quote. So I'll take a little pause there. So you can see in that primary source, referencing the events that we discussed earlier in this podcast, right? Um, he's calling the Medes the Umanmanga, which he's, he's conceptualizing them as barbarian hordes again. The, the Medes had settled that land quite recently. They were sort of horsemen and so on. And that's apparently how the, the more civilized, as they would have thought of themselves, people in Babylon would have seen them. But, so in that history, he's also talking about um, how he's really into... Um, rebuilding these temples of the god Sin, um, and that's, that's been made possible by these um, geopolitical events. So, uh, John Oates continues, quote, Nabonidus's restoration of Ehul may have been motivated solely by filial piety, but his increasing devotion to the god Sin, the dream references to Marduk were obvious propaganda for Babylonian consumption and are totally absent from local Haram inscriptions, constituted a religious innovation which proved exceedingly unpopular with conservative elements in Babylonia, an unpopularity which the young servant of the dream text was later to exploit. The Haram inscription records rebellion in Akkad. Quote, the sons of Babylon, Borsipa, Nippur, Ur, Uruk, Lassa, priests and people of the capitals of the Cad, against his great divinity offended, and they forgot their duty. Whenever they talked, it was treason and not loyalty. Like a dog, they devoured one another, fever and famine in the midst of them. End quote. John Oates continues. Nabonidus's Religious and administrative reforms provoked great resentment, while wars and extensive building programs of his predecessors had pro proved a severe burden on the country's resources. Large numbers of economic texts reveal severe inflation, a situation made worse now by the spread of plague. Between 560 and 550, prices rose up to 50%, and from 560, to 485, the total increase amounted to some 200%. Nabonidus now made an extraordinary move that has yet to be satisfactorily explained. Installing his son, Belshazzar, as regent in Babylon, he led an army through Syria and Lebanon, and finally on to the oasis of Tamir, northwest Arabia, where he was to remain for the next ten years quote directly from Nabonidus, but I hide myself far away from the city of Babylon. Ten years to my city, Babylon, I went not in, end quote. So I'll put that text down now for a minute, but I thought that gave a nice variety of primary sources there. So what's going on there? Well, it seems there's like at least three things that we could point to that would be fueling a sort of popular discontent with the ruling family in Babylon. The first is pretty standard that there's sort of material economic problems. 
And by the way, isn't it fascinating that we have enough documentation that we can go back and show inflation? Isn't that crazy? We actually have tens of thousands of these clay tablets of, like, regular just business transactions and so on, and we have enough that we can see changing price levels. So that's kind of like a fascinating little bit of historical data right there. Beyond that, though, he seems to be one of these rulers who's got really into making substantive religious reforms. So the main god in Babylon is Marduk, but he's become, how should we say this, he's become entranced with this other god, Sin, the god of the moon, and he's sort of trying to replace Marduk as the primary um, sort of god of the, of the civilization. And you do find these guys occasionally. There was a ruler, Akhenaten, in Egypt who did the same thing and tried to say this whole pantheon of gods you have, I'm going to make it about this one god. They're not common, but they do come along, and they're kind of interesting counterpoints to both the sort of pragmatic, cynical read of the motivations of political elites, as well as the Marxist read. Because it looks like what he's doing is creating a huge backlash amongst the religious establishment to no obvious purpose other than himself. And then again, from the Marxist point of view, if everything's just sort of an after-the-fact rationalisation of underlying power structures, then why occasionally do we find people behaving in such an obviously heterodox way. You know, where does that come from? And I think the answer's obvious when you think about it, is he must have genuinely believed it. Or at least that's... must is a bit strong. That's an explanation that covers the facts much more than the other explanations, is the sort of idealist interpretation. He formed certain ideas about the world, albeit religious ideas that it's kind of hard for us moderns to wrap our head around, like exactly what's the difference between these two gods to them. And he's acting because of it, and he's acting in a way that would seem to violate both the Marxist and the rational self-interest view of the world, and nor is it obviously explained by the domination view of the world, as evidenced by what he's about to do next, which is leave Babylon for ten years and go off to a little oasis in the desert that has a particular shrine that he's focused on. And as the, the secondary source I was reading, you said, no adequate explanation has ever been put forward for this. This, by the way, was hugely unpopular in Babylon. Because in Babylon, you had a situation in which every year there was a ritual where Marduk, the god, renewed the kingship, as it was called, taking the hands of Marduk, where Marduk was represented by this huge statue of the god, which in some way that we don't really understand was believed to be the god. And that had huge religious and cultural importance. And if the king's not there, you can't do that ceremony. And that was apparently a huge source of discontent. But I want to just pivot to um, this idea that no explanation has been put forward. Well, I'd put it to you, the obvious explanation 
is that this guy did just, this Nabonidus fellow, did just go off the deep end religiously. He did become infatuated with these ideas, and he thought he was correct in some sense. Now, we don't know, right? We can't go back 2,600 years and really, like, put that guy under a polygraph, not that polygraphs work anyway, but you know what I mean, and say, yeah, no, we, we, we looked him in his eye, we heard what he was saying. You know, we have what we have. And almost like this sort of modern horror movie genre that I've been comparing this period to, you have these things that don't appear to make a lot of sense, and you have to go, okay, well, what do we make of that? And I don't know, I can't tell you what to think, what do we make of what's going on? But just taking it there, already there, you can see a lot of, like, potential sources of discontent that someone like Cyrus could potentially capitalize on. And they're going to add one more, because they're going to go to war with the Persians and the Medes, as they call it, but, you know, Cyrus, essentially. And as Cyrus sort of starts advancing on Babylon, the Babylonians are going to take in all of the gods of the local surrounding towns for safekeeping. Well, what does that mean? I want to spend a minute of time on this, because I find this fascinating, and I find it almost basically impossible to wrap my head around what was being visualised here. So by taking in the gods, you know, each little area will have their gods that they worship, and even within Babylon, you know, Marduk's the main god they worship in Babylon. But Babylon's an empire, rules many other uh, peoples and territories and so on. And so all of the, like, perhaps smaller cities, some of which were still very big, around it, they have their own sort of cults and religious practices, and they often focus on these statues of the gods. But they don't talk about them that way. To them, there isn't the distinction that is, for us, between statues of the gods and gods. They see them as the same thing. And you can see this, you know that bit in the Old Testament where Moses goes up and he gets his Ten Commandments and he comes back down and he finds them worshipping a golden cow, and then he goes and kills 3,000 of them, because it was that big an offence. Well, on the one hand, why was it that big an offence? And two, what was the big motivation to make a golden cow? in the first place, and I think we're looking at this anachronistically, we're looking at this from the modern lens in which there's a pretty big distinction between, like, conscious animals and inanimate objects. We see that as a really, really, really hard divide. We don't generally attribute to, like, statues properties of, like, intelligence and cognition and so on. The other big divide, which is so, so sort of rooted into us, but we have to remember these people just didn't have, is the natural-supernatural divide. So I talked about this quite a lot with Dale Martin, and he has a whole book on it, but the idea is this. We see there as being, like, well, if we're religious, and even if we're not, we still conceptualise it this way, sort of like two planes of existence, the natural world and the supernatural world. So there's, in Christianity, right, there's, there's on earth and in heaven. 
and they're, they're separate. And it might be like they're physically separate, like heaven is like literally up in the sky somewhere, or it might be just like they're, they're conceptually separate, like there are sort of divine happenings on Earth, but that's an intrusion from something sort of outside of the fundamental mechanics of the universe coming into the universe. And the fact that we, we conceptualize it as an intrusion means that there's like two separate things. Um, to the ancient mind, they just don't have this at all. That's not to say they're like materialists or atheists in the modern sense, not at all. They believe in all sorts of gods and supernatural forces. Um, but those forces are located within nature. And indeed, in the religions of this time, they're very much located in, within nature. Like, there's the river god, right? There's the god of the mountain. And it's not like a being from on high who sort of blesses that mountain. They are coterminous with it in a way that's really, really difficult, I think, for us to sort of to work out what they were picturing in their head, what they were visualizing when they talked about these statues being not a representation of the god, but the god. And this is a theme I'm going to come back to in this series, which this is an idea that often people are not merely using different language or whatever, but they're visualizing something in their head that we just don't have access to. Now, conversely, if you try to describe many elements of the modern world to someone living back then, you just wouldn't be able to do it. And I think we all sort of understand that, but what I'm saying is that it also goes just as much the other way round, and that knowledge isn't just this cumulative process of, like, adding to a total stockpile. Well, we learn about this thing, we add to the pile. We learn about this other thing, we add to the pile. In that stuff in that pile gets lost, and it's often not retrievable. Like, once it's gone, it's gone. So the example of this that's most... Um, vivid for me is Paul, this is New Testament, so getting ahead a little, and I get this again from um, Dale Martin, describes the resurrected body, so the form that Jesus came back in as a pneumatic body, that is a body made of the stuff of pneuma. Now that word pneuma often gets translated as spirit, and so we immediately go, oh, we know what they're conceptualizing here. They're basically like conceptualizing a ghost, almost, like some floaty white thing that sort of is intruding on our plane of reality from some other plane of reality. And Dale Martin says, well, that's... And again, the, just the point here, you don't have to buy the specifics of the case. But he says, well, that's wrong. They didn't have this natural-supernatural divide. And what's more... If you look at what they mean by pneuma, it's sort of a physical stuff. When you breathe in and your lungs fill with air, that's pneuma. But also, when your brain sends like signals to your body to move, that's the movement of pneuma. It's a sort of physical scientific category that we just don't have anymore. And so what does that look like to say you have a body that's made out of the physical stuff of pneuma. Well, I think when Paul said it, people he was saying it to would have been able to visualize what it was that he was talking about. 
And maybe we just can't, like Dale Martin's um, way of describing it, is try to imagine a human body made of nothing but oxygen and electricity. And that sort of matches what's in the New Testament, where other sources talk about the resurrection in terms that are very strongly evocative of flashing lights. But again, what does that look like? What are they picturing here that they can picture and we can't? Something surely that's just been lost to us and that we can't approach without anachronism. Now, there are better and worse anachronisms, so to think of it as a spirit is probably a worse anachronism than thinking of it as a physical thing made of gas and electricity. But we don't know, and even that might get us closer to what they were picturing, but it doesn't get us there, and I find that thought so fascinating. And so again, if you think about these gods, right, these statues that are not representations of gods, not to the people who, who worship them, but gods, these were apparently lovingly washed and clothed and fed elaborate meals, and they would be part of the feast days with people, and they would be, they would be part of the community in a way that I think is just so hard for us to wrap our head around. And I was thinking about this, and like, how could we get closer to that? And I was thinking, I was thinking, and two things sort of came to mind, one of which is even today, where we have a really hard distinction between, like, conscious animals and, you know, just material stuff about the world, which we universally assume is unconscious, we still have a very, very strong propensity to anthropomorphize that stuff. So think about children have, like, teddy bears and dolls, which they love deeply, and these things have, they're not objects to them, they have real personalities. And we can sort of just say, well, that's just a childish thing or whatever, but to the child, it is real. That thing is a real personality, it is a personhood. And if anyone else has ever lost a, a, a particularly beloved toy when they were a child, you understand just how distressing that is to you. You're not losing an object, you're losing something that's almost a person, it's a friend, right? Well, is it possible that that is how these ancient peoples reacted with those gods? And we can say, well, you know, I mean, kids having teddy bears is one thing, we're talking, we're talking about entire civilizational structures being orientated around these beliefs. And like, sure, that sounds wild, but is that too crazy for history? Is that too crazy, especially in a world where they didn't have these distinctions that we did, where the idea of inanimate objects having purpose and having character that was just the water they were swimming in. That was the way they perceived the world around them. That it wasn't that supernatural elements came in. They were a part of nature. They were a part of the natural order. Um, and is it really that implausible to think that there was this group affection for these objects in a way that children have for their most beloved toys. 
And I don't mean to infantilise the ancients there, because even when we're adults and we quote-unquote big heavy scare quotes know better, a lot of people still really anthropomorphise the objects they own. People have treasured possessions that are very, very meaningful to them. You know, some family heirloom handed down, something your mother gave you on her deathbed, or just like a particular thing that has, has meaning to you, right? And I think we'd all agree that in the modern age, it would certainly be mean-spirited to say to someone, it's just an object. Well, I mean, it's true as a sort of object-level fact. It's an object, right, to which you have developed a very deep emotional bond. There's no need to put the word just in there and dismiss that. Well, what does that need of humans? apparently quite universal, to, to give this character and personality to things in the world around them. What does that look like when there isn't this hard material, non-material distinction? When there isn't this natural, supernatural divide? Is it that crazy to believe that people really emotionally felt that these objects were persons, divine persons? At that. And then the other thing I was thinking about, and I was thinking about, is people in the modern world talk to God all the time. Now, as a sort of atheist, I can say, well, what they're doing there is some sort of process of introspection. It's some sort of like talking to themselves at some level. But I don't want to be too dismissive of this. I'm not being the jerk atheist in this one. I'm trying to like genuinely think, how can we wrap our head around what these people are thinking? And so I was thinking about this and I happened to see this documentary on Netflix called The Pharmacist, which is pretty good, by the way, I'd recommend that. And I won't go through it all, but it's essentially about people who've decided to take on um, the prescription drug industry. And a lot of the key people in the story, there were interviews with all of them. Um, and he didn't focus on this, but were clearly very religious. And when they were making these huge, momentous life decisions about, like, am I going to spend the next few years trying to take this particular doctor down who's writing way too many scripts for Oxycontin? Am I going to testify in court against a drug dealer, even though that might threaten my life or, or my children's lives? When you get these sort of huge, life-defining decisions... What I thought was interesting is that they did the sort of rational self-interest thing. They sort of talked about the costs and benefits and so on. But for all of them, what it came down to was a religious moment. They asked God and they got a particular response. And this is why I say I don't want to demean it. Because in some circumstances, just the foundational framework that just runs through all of us and we're so brought up in... The, the, the particular cultural practices that we've lived in, at these certain key moments, proves inadequate. And we sometimes are confronted with these decisions that sort of defy a narrow, rational choice model. And, you know, the woman who decided to testify against the drug dealer, eventually what landed her on it was this idea that God loves the truth. And that's what pushed her over the line. And I think sometimes 
for all that I've critiqued religion, there is this function that religion can have that can either be good or bad, is that it can get you to a place that you would not have got to just thinking about rational self-interest, or just thinking cynically or, or pragmatically. If you're going to go into court and risk your life to testify just because you think it's the right thing to do, maybe you need something a little bit stronger than just, well, you know, it'll benefit me in this, this, and this way, it'll disadvantage me in, in this, this, and this way, to, as a Christian would say, walk out on faith, and faith alone. Now, I don't mean to glorify it too much either. Clearly, there's negative things that can come from that as well, right? So, you know, it seems to me at least quite difficult to say, justify some of the religious terrorism we've seen, suicide bombing, something like that. Yeah, not to discriminate against one religion there, maybe, you know, people who shoot up abortion clinics and so on. It seems quite difficult to get there just on rational self-interest alone, right? That's not to say religion's the only thing that does that. When I look at, like, say, some of the resistance fighters in World War II, there's some sort of, like, political ideology there that's got them to the point of, I'm going to risk my life and maybe I'm going to be shot, but effort, like standing up to the Nazis, is just the overwhelming moral need. But in a world where our ideological practices are just sort of shot through with this idea of the egoic individual, you know, maybe, like, religion is the out that, that, that matters now, when people are faced with these life choices, where they feel the need to go beyond simply being a self-interested creature. Now, what's different about that is that's all very internal. It's something the person is, it's a conversation they're having with themselves, right? Maybe with another person, but it's something they get to individually. And so what I was thinking is what if you combine those two the sort of anthropomorphic desire to really love objects and cherish objects and value objects, and also this thing where we can sort of put aside pragmatism and really be led by another part of ourselves. What would that look like? Well, that idea to really be led and really step out on faith would become collective, right? And again, this seems a bit bonkers. And this is just a sort of theory I have, so take it with a pinch of salt. But what if that's sort of like hearing the voice or like feeling what it was that God wanted you to do, which we perceive of as very individualistic? What if it was collective? And what if it was geared around these particular gods, these objects? And that sort of seems a bit crazy, but I was thinking, how many times do people come to some sort of collective understanding that wasn't the product of rational deliberation, and that no individual was really aware of how it was arrived at? And the example I'm going to give is so silly, right? But think of a Ouija board. You know that little thing they have in horror movies where they all move it over particular letters and it spells out something? 
Well, this does work in real life. People do really freak themselves out. And by the way, whoever thought this was an appropriate kid's toy, I don't know. <laughs> but people do really freak themselves out by, like, collectively somehow. They get it to spell out a sentence, and no one individual really knows how they did it. Well, okay, so let's... Let's pull all that together, and again, this is pretty trippy stuff to think about, but again, ancient history is like a contemporary horror movie. Like, it's weird, and it's sort of counter-expectational, right? But what if people feel about these gods? Like, you know, children feel about their most beloved toy, except even more so. It's not just their friend. It is their provider, it is their god, it is their moral guide. And what if, what, what, what is happening to these people when they say the god said this, right? You've heard it all the time in this story, in the first-hand sources. People just assert, this is what the god said. And it's not like in the modern world. In the modern world, there's always this story about how, like, an angel came to them, or they saw it in a dream. And there's a bit of that in the ancient world, too. But like when Joseph Smith says, you know, I was called by God, there's a very specific narrative as to what it looked like. And sceptics can always say, and maybe justifiably so, well, yeah, but mate, we've only got your word for that. Okay, and because we've only got their word for it, we often see around sort of more modern prophets these very elaborate stories of how this supernatural element came in and sort of justified and sanctified a particular practice. Well, is that what, just what's going on here? Is by the god said, do we just mean some powerful ruler or some priest just comes out and says, this is what the god said? Well, maybe, right? Like, and certainly that did happen, and you can see um, particular rulers saying the god spoke to me individually. And in some of these ancient temples, we've discovered this now, there was actually like a hidden area at the back where the priests would hide, and they'd listen to people's prayers, and they'd, they'd just sort of shout out, pretending to be the god, you know, I am Marduk, and I command you to do this. Um, so... That was definitely there. Religious charlatanism is as old as time. But then again, there's so many references where people just said the god said this, and it's left at that. And we're all just sort of expected to know what that means. So maybe it was just charlatanism all the way down. Could easily have been. I don't know. But what if it wasn't? What if people really felt this deeply strong, familial, emotional attachment to these gods, and in collectives around them in these feast days and holidays and religious festivals, some sort of, like, Ouija board subliminal communication goes around, and everyone just sort of agrees, yeah, this is, this is what the god said, and it's a source of moral guidance in the same way that our individual communication with God today is, except it's collective. Now, I know that sounds bonkers, but it's really, really going to match what comes next. Because what comes next, and the reason I took it so long setting that little bit up, is the Babylonians as they, you know, are going to get attacked by Cyrus, are going to say to all of their, like, surrounding towns in their empire, we're going to take your gods in for safekeeping. So we don't want 
those evil old Persians getting your gods. So we're going to physically take these statues, which were huge and weighed like tons, by the way. We're going to physically take them all and bring them into Babylon. And the narrative was sort of one of safekeeping, right? We want to make sure they're protected. But there's also a sort of blackmail element there, like, yeah, we've got your god. You'd better not think about rebelling. Now, none of that makes sense if they're just thinking of them the way we would think about a particular statue as, as representational. And one of the things that comes through really clearly in all of the primary and secondary sources is how incredibly psychologically distressing that was to people, how profoundly traumatizing it was. And again, think about if you've ever lost a truly beloved toy as a child, how upsetting that was. Now map that up to something you believe is real, and you believe is actually a god, and is the entire moral focal point for your entire culture. And I think we can't really get our heads around how traumatizing this would be for people. But that's something the Babylonians did. And again, maybe that is going to again play into Cyrus's hands. Because afterwards we're going to hear that all of these gods, they quite liked Cyrus, right? They were for Cyrus. They were on his side in a way that might have been really real to people in a way that we just can't fathom. So just on the religious front, you've already got this god Marduk, who again, might have been conceived of in this way, who feels rejected, who feels slighted. And again, I'm just going to start attributing agency to these things, right? Because that's how people at the time could easily have seen it. I think it's how they did see it. Marduk feels slighted and disrespected by Nabonidus, who's been fucked off in some oasis for ten years. These local gods feel like they've been torn out of their communities, right? And then there's a final piece, isn't there? Which is that Babylon has not only taken in many of the gods of surrounding areas, it's when it's gone to war with those surrounding areas. It's taken in many of their populations. And there's one of which we have a lot of literary records from the Jews who were deported to Babylon, and something different happened to them. They're beginning to uniquely, and in a way that like seems intuitive to us now, but in a way that was quietly revolutionary in the world back then, have stopped thinking about their god as more physically embodied, and perhaps slowly are working towards inventing something, again so obvious to us, but not really heard of at all in the world at the time, which is monotheism. Now, a lot of people will debate when this came in, and a lot of people will say the Jews at this time are sort of more thinking about their god as like a king god, like the head of the, the Parthian of gods. Um, and it's only after the release from Babylon. And you can see this in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, sorry, that there's ways that they talk about god that are much more in line with, like, Marduk, a sort of one god of a particular people, of a particular time, who has a particular creation story, and sort of is against and disputes other gods. So you remember um, when Moses challenges the, the magicians of the pharaoh, the magicians, too, can perform magic, right? But 
the Jewish god can perform better magic. So it's not like he's the only god, he's just, like, the best one. And then there's other bits of the Old Testament that sort of talk about it in a more modern way. And I'm not going to get into the historical debate about when that evolution came in. It might have been something that happened over quite a long time. But at any rate, um, this is another group that is someone else who a potential conqueror can appeal to. And so this is, you know, take this little story with a grain of salt, but it's too good and too powerful not to get in here. So we do have a record from the Jewish tradition about, again, one of these divine interventions where the God speaks directly and says, I am against, you know, this government in, um, in Babylon. And apparently, you know, this just matches, you know, Marduk saying, I am against this guy who has slighted me. The local gods saying, I am against the, this guy who has taken me from my home city, has kidnapped me, essentially. Um, and so this is in the book of Daniel, which we should take with a big pinch of salt. It was written quite some considerable time after this. But it might contain a sort of shadow of historical truth to it. So it talks about Belshazzar, who you remember is the regent who's been left to rule Babylon in Nabonidus's absence. And this is just Daniel 5. Quote, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the kings, his nobles, his wives and concubines might drink from them. So they brought the gold tablets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king, his nobles, his wives and concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. End quote. So two things there. One is this source is getting the history wrong. Nebuchadnezzar isn't Belshazzar's father. Nebuchadnezzar was the last of the dynasty that ended before Nabonidus. Nabonidus took over after there was no uh, legitimate or dynastically appointed person. Um, so that's a small detail that it gets wrong, that makes a lot of people sort of doubt this as a primary source. But another point to make is, doesn't it actually sort of match the story we've been telling, where what's going to make the god mad is an offence against objects of the god. Like, they're drinking on these gold top, um, goblets that have been taken from the temple of the god in Jerusalem, and that's actually the offence. It's an offence against objects. So again, I'm not saying this is all perfectly historical, but this sort of, it, once you put the story in its historical context, it actually matches up with a lot of stuff that other people were saying at the same time. So, returning to the text, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand of the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking, end quote. So again, another very direct, 
divine intervention. And, you know, I talked about the Frieden model, where God is sort of the big bang that sets up a political order. It's like, you know, why is the king in charge? Because his father was in charge, or why is he in charge? You go back far enough because God set it up, right? But God there is kind of an origin point. It's a competition over the control of the beginning of things. And that's how we're used to thinking about this, filtering it, say, through the lens of European aristocracies and so on. But what if there were these little big bangs exploding all the time, and people sort of expected direct divine intervention, these direct points that legitimate or delegitimate political authority to blow up all the time? And again, if we're taking the source at face value, which maybe we shouldn't, the king is absolutely terrified by this. And so he's scared out of his mind, returning to the text, quote, the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and shall have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Do not be alarmed. Do not look so pale. There is a man in the kingdom who has the spirits of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and the diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call on Daniel for he will tell you what the writing means." End quote. So in other words, they're, they're all taking this as real. This is all a sign from the gods. But what does it mean? Well, there's this one dude, this Jew into captivity, who, like, he's interpreted dreams before. Let's see if he can, can work it out. So, quote, So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles that my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they, they could not explain it. Now, I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." End quote. And Daniel basically says, keep your gifts, keep your gifts, but I'll tell you what it means. And there's a bit about like the arrogance and haughtiness of the royal family and how they don't feel, fear the gods. And then Daniel tells him what it means. And he says, but you Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot hear or understand. But you did not honour the god who holds in his hand 
your life and all your ways. Therefore, he has sent the hand that wrote that inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Meany, meany, tekel, parson. Here is what the words mean. Meany, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parcel, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. End quote. And apparently Belshazzar gives him the gold chain and stuff. And then he's killed and um, it says Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. So, again, there's always this confusion of who are the Medes and who are the Persians, and some people don't see them as different, and even modern historians argue. I've been sort of going with the narrative where the Persians are sort of a group who did like a, almost like a hostile takeover of the Median aristocracy. But we needn't get into all of that. Here's my main takeaway from it. Do we really have to believe that a hand wrote writing on the wall? No, right? Although, again, history is a horror movie. What actually happened here? Is this just all after-the-fact propaganda? Was there some sort of incident? We don't know. But the narrative that seems to be emerging on all fronts is that the gods are pissed with this guy. The gods are not happy with the ruling family of, of Babylon. And all these different gods are not happy about what's happening. And again, you can say, well, maybe what Cyrus is doing is realpolitik. Maybe it's something like that. But there has to be something on the other side. Why are all of these different civilizations, why are there nobles going, yeah, this king to which we've sworn allegiance, and by the conventional rules of, um, you know, how we should be thinking about things according to the ideology of our time, where we owe allegiance to our king and our traditional gods, they're all just going, yeah, we will happily scrap our existing royal family and have you instead. Maybe there's something in it for them? Or maybe, I don't know, when I read all of these primary sources, and like somewhat primary sources, I get just an incredible sense of real religious discomfort and real trauma around the way their gods are being treated. And someone who comes in with a message of restoration, it, it would seem like the gods would say, the god is with Cyrus. The god supports this guy. And that is what's going to happen. So Cyrus is going to go to war with Babylon. It's not going to be completely non-violent. I don't mean to too sanitize this. There will be some battles that are fought. But when he enters Babylon, he apparently does so without resistance. And the records we have from the Persians um, describes how Marduk, who Nabonidus had neglected, marched with him and his army, quote, as a friend and companion. Well, again, what does that mean? What are they visualizing here when they say the god marched with them? Even if it's even if it's all just later after the fact propaganda. What what does that look like? What are they asking people to visualize? We just don't know. Again, history is a horror movie, right? And then when Cyrus gets into Babylon, There'll be a scene where he rides in and people lay down palm fronds in front of him and he's hailed 
as the sort of the one the gods have chosen. And again, he doesn't do this thing to conquered cities that was normal at the time. He's going to appoint a Persian governor. Let's make sure you pay your taxes and all that. But he's going to restore many of the temples of Marduk. And he's going to say, yeah, you know, your god was angry. He was being, like, badly treated. And um, that's, why, that's why he supported me. Which is, again, a story you can always sort of tell after the fact. But there had to be something on the side of the Babylonian aristocracy and the Babylonian priesthood that made them just just accept Cyrus, right? And then he's going to do something which I don't think another ruler at the time would have done. And it's one of these things of, like, sort of according to, like, you know, maybe the Marxist theory or the rational self-interest theory or the domination theory, even the idealist theory to some point, People are always just sort of doing what you would expect them to do, right? They're reflecting the underlying economic structure. They're pursuing their own self-interest. Or they're sort of behaving in a way to, like, dominate and humiliate people. And even according to the idealist theory, there's not as much agency. People have ideas, they compete over them, and the best one wins out, right? But what Cyrus does here, and one way of putting this, is a lot of the really momentous decisions in human history. It's sort of like if they didn't do them, someone else would have done, right? If, um, but like, this isn't the case here. No one else would have done this. And its effects reverberate around the world today. Like, if what Cyrus is about to do, which again, I don't think any of these other ancient rulers would have even thought to do, if he doesn't do this, we are, we are then put on an alternate history timeline that is so radically divergent that it makes the questions of, like, what if Hitler won the Second World War look absolutely trivial. I think that's absolutely true. We can at least imagine what the world would have looked like if Hitler didn't win the Second World War. But the effects of what Cyrus is about to do here are so far-reaching that I don't think we could conceptualise the world today if he hadn't done it. Now, a lot of those effects I don't think he would have seen coming, but what he's going to do is, I think in his mind, the restoration. All of the gods that have been brought into Babylon, incredibly traumatizing their home cities, are sent back. You get your god back. And then all of the populations that have been deported there are not only allowed to return, but financially supported in doing so, and we will give you money to rebuild the countries that the Babylonians had destroyed. And this is how Cyrus, in his own words, we have a sort of rare first-hand source here, is going to signal what he's doing to the words. I am Kurash, Cyrus to us, king of the world. Great king, legitimate king, king of Babylonia, king of Kaigor and Akkad, king of the four realms of the earth, son of Kubajaya, the great king, king of Hashkamesh, grandson of Kurash, great king, king of Hashkamesh, descendant of Chipnesh, great king, king of Hashnamesh, of a family which always exercised kingship, whose rule Bel and Nebo love whom they sent as king to please their hearts. When I entered Babylonia as a friend, 
I was established in the seat of government, in the palace of their ruler, under jubilation and rejoicing. Marduk, the great lord, induced the magnanimous inhabitants of Babylonia to love me, and I was daily endeavoured to worship him. As to the region, from as far as Asura to Susa, Akkad to Ashuna, the towns Zami, Malturn, Dare, as well as the regions of the Gutian, I returned to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris. The sanctuaries, which had been in ruins for such a long time, the images which used to live therein, and established them for permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered up all of the former inhabitants and returned them to their habitations. Furthermore, I resettled at the command of Marduk, the great lord, all of the gods of Klinger and Akkad, whom Nabonidus had brought into Babylonia, to anger the lord of gods, unharmed in their former temples, the places that make them happy, end quote. So, he was calling it Babylonia there, I guess that just means Babylon. Um, but he's very much signalling, right? The gods are on my side. And to sort of, like, find support for this thing that's just been striking me about the ancient texts, is listen to how he's describing the restoration of the gods. He says, I took the gods unharmed in their former temples, the places that make them happy. Again, 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 ancient history is a horror movie, but I don't mean it's dark and scary, I mean it's epistemically murky. That's not how we talk about religious artefacts in these days. And that, I think, just just does sort of vindicate this idea I've been trying to develop of, like, maybe this is more like how ancient people saw their gods? And who knows? Who knows if I'm right? Like, that's, like, one idea. I think what's fascinating about this is that we just don't know. Um, but we have a primary source from one of these peoples who were released, and this release is going to be... I don't think Cyrus could have foreseen this, but foundational, that the return of the Jews, and this is debated, by the way, people will say different things, but that might have been what prompted the pulling together of many of their different sort of historical sources and Genesis accounts and so on, and the creation of the Pentateuch, the Jewish Bible. That's one historical thesis about the origins of the Old Testament. There are others, but I think that's probably the dominant historical thesis, and I'm not going to get into all of the arguments there. And it's also going to be a pivotal event in the creation of monotheism. So just this is how it's documented in the Bible. This is from Ezra 1. Quote, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord inspired Cyrus, king of Persia, to issue this proclamation throughout his kingdom, both by word of mouth and in writing. Thus said Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given to me, which he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever, therefore, among you peoples belongs to any part of his people, let him go up and let his God be with him. Let everyone who has survived, in whatever place he may have dwelt, be assisted by the people of that place, with silver, gold, and goods, together with free will offerings for the God in Jerusalem, end quote. And he also says he gave them back all of these um, treasures of the Lord, which apparently had been so important, and the misuse of which had offended God so much. 
And we don't need to go into a super detail with the biblical bit, except just to note how much it does seem to conform to the other narratives that are coming from the Babylonians, that are coming from Cyrus, about what exactly went down here. And I think the narrative most people end up landing on is that this is generally a sort of after-the-fact propaganda, in that Cyrus has sort of hit on a very clever realpolitik that's really just worked for him. He's found the winning formula to break this stalemate that this religion has been in. This region, sorry, has been in. I mean, think about how he introduces himself. This is a guy who started his career as the regent of Ashan. He's now introducing himself as Kurash, king of the world, great king. That's a pretty big promotion, right? So whatever he's done, it's worked. And, you know, maybe it just seems so great and seems so idealistic. But, you know, if you're a conqueror, looking at that situation in Babylon and all of that economic and religious discontent, surely maybe a smart guy would just think to himself, well, so if I just let them know, hey, accept me without fuss, and I'll, I'll make sure Marduk gets his due. I'll make sure that, hey, you want to go home? I'll send you home. I'll pay for your temple to be rebuilt. You want your gods back? I'll give you your gods back. Maybe it's just a sort of cynical exploiting of that sort of underlying anger. That certainly makes sense as an explanation. And then all of this sort of like the gods came in and the gods told people to do stuff, like that sort of after-the-fact propaganda. And the fact that it's so universal is kind of proof of this, because the Babylonians loved this guy. You know, obviously to Persians to this day, he is sort of considered just really truly one of the great men of history. He's the only non-Jew who's revered as a messiah in the Old Testament. Like, just nobody, even the Greeks, who were going to go to war with the Persians a heck of a lot, look to him as a sort of model of a great leader. Like, nobody has a bad word to say about the dude. So does that prove he really was all that? Or, most historians say, this was a guy who was very good at writing his own propaganda. Didn't Churchill say once? Churchill said, history will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. Well, you know, maybe Cyrus was that type of dude. But what I sort of find interesting here, though, as I'm going to make a big jump here, is we don't see the modern world like that at all. So just really quick to take two politicians who we talk about all the time, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, right? These are the two who, for better or worse, right, people seem to be getting quite excited about right now. I'm recording this a little bit before Super Tuesday, so who knows what'll happen, but Bernie Sanders, from where I'm recording now, looks at least pretty plausible as a potential Democratic nominee, and obviously Trump is the president. I think, by and large, we don't experience those two political figures as just cynically following a particular stratagem dispassionately. Even in Trump's case, 
I think generally there's an instinct on the left that, yes, this man is a pathological liar, but I think most people would say there is a core set of instincts within him about his attitudes about race, about his attitudes about America's place in the world, about a very clear visceral dislike for non-white people speaking up for themselves, certain views about his affinity for political authoritarianism, that, don't get me wrong, he lies about everything. Like, Trump lies about the number of flaws that his buildings have. But I think there is an instinct that that's sort of like racist, authoritarian core is genuine enough as it goes, and the reason a lot of people like him is that they sense that it's genuine, that racists have a pretty good sense for who's really a racist and who's pandering to their racism, and they felt that the Republican establishment was merely pandering. But in Trump, they sort of see one of their own. Now, that could easily be true, but you could also construct a narrative that Trump simply doesn't care about any of this, that he just wanted power and money and influence for himself. After all, he's changed position on key Republican talk. You know, he used to be pro-choice, for instance, right? So maybe he just sort of learned the Fox News language, realised it could bring him into power, and just went with that train as far as it goes. Let's take the other example, Bernie Sanders. Now, if there's one politician, I think, and this is the reason I picked him, that if people on the left generally believe that this guy is a genuine ideologue, I don't mean ideologue in any negative sense, I mean someone who actually believes, by and large, let's say, what they say they believe. Well, Maybe Bernie Sanders has been reasonably, and I say reasonably, consistent on his positions throughout the year. Yes, he's also just quite repetitive. Like I got this from five thirty-eight, and this isn't a negative point about Sanders at all. Is this? It's not even that he's consistent. It's that he repeats himself. Any question he asks, he directs back to the same talking points about the rise of the ultra-rich in America, money in politics, and everyone else kind of getting the raw end of the deal. Now, I'm not knocking that, by the way. That's, I, I think, largely a true account of the world. But he's always just hitting that again and again and again. And it makes him seem comparatively honest and believable compared to politicians who are maybe changing their talking points every individual cycle, um, but I could equally tell you a narrative. I'm not saying it's true, I'm just saying I can tell you this narrative. Well, that's just a cynical strategy, where Sanders doesn't particularly have any personal ideological convictions whatsoever, but he's recognised that always going for the focus group talking points might serve you in the short run, but in the long run, it undermines your credibility and trust. And you might think about this as the sort of Cato strategy of politics, in that you'll have a certain trade-offs, right? There's certain advantages to being flexible, but there's also certain advantages to being inflexible. And if being consistent makes people believe you, well, maybe this is just someone who's sort of cynically played into that. Now, I'm not saying it's true, but I do wonder... If people look back a thousand years from now at this particular time period, if they'll see 
a lot of the passion and energy that people have around these two candidates, and they'll see the various things that these candidates are saying, and the level of emotion that's involved around those candidates, and they'll flatten it all out to pragmatism. They'll say something like, well, you know, Bernie Sanders talked a lot about socialism, what he was actually doing was just cynically exploiting um, these sorts of particular discontents and features of the American economy, and so say Sanders does become president, I don't know how well that take will age, but just say he does. People at the time will feel like we've finally got a politician who's assuming they're Sanders supporter, who's who's on our side, who's fighting in our corner. I think that's that's the real attraction of Sanders. He's he's really fighting our corner. Um and even if he fails to get all of his agenda through, which I think he probably will, I think people will still feel like this is our guy. And I think people feel the same way about Trump. That's not to say they're the same thing at all, you know. Trump is grotesque and dishonest in a way, even at Sanders' worst moments, he never approaches. But I think historians of a later age will look back and they'll just sort of explain, you know, how it was all in the self-interest or whatever. Or maybe they won't. Maybe historians of a future age will be looking back with a radically different paradigm of the world. And they'll assume that everything anyone did was simply meeting that paradigm. You look at um, something like I talked about the pharmaceutical industry, right? Where one individual family made $13 billion selling opioids, which killed tens of thousands of people. Why? Why not stop at $5 billion? Why did that extra $7 billion that you'll ever spend justify doing that? And I think we at this time understand that that is just sort of like a rational self-interest gone mad. A future age will look at that and say, no, of course, one person didn't really think that them having an additional amount of money that they could never spend, that wasn't really what was going on. Let's explain it in terms of our paradigm, how we see the world, and they'll project that back onto us. And Trump and Bernie Sanders and the sort of grotesque corporate greed of the pharmaceutical industry will all be interpreted according to motives that are completely unintelligible to any observer at the time. And that if even any of these key actors, you came to Trump or Sanders or the Pfizer family and said, this is what you're doing, right? They'd be like, what on earth are you talking about? Nobody, it wouldn't make sense to them. Well, is that what we're doing with the past? And so here's the dilemma. You know, and this is the, the, a big question I've been, I've been asking in this series. Do political elites believe what they're saying? Because our first response is no, but I think we do think Bernie Sanders believes what he's saying. But you can tell the narrative either way. Do they? Did Cyrus, and I'll end with that question, what makes more sense? Again, history is a horror movie. There is no definitive answer to this. We won't know. That's a, it's a personality that's lost to us. 
It's a personality who existed in ways of seeing the world that are lost to us. Like, what were they conceptualising when they thought about these gods? We don't know. And it might be as fundamentally epistemically unknowable to us as trying to explain aeroplanes to someone who lived back then. There's just too big a chasm there. And that's what I want to leave you with. What do you think? I've given you the primary sources. I've given you what people said about them. Did Cyrus, was this just a sort of cynical, I'm making myself king of the world? I'll give you what I think. I think the cynical narrative makes sense applied backwards. To my mind, fundamentally operating outside of the paradigm that you're in, which for us is sort of rational self-interest, but for Cyrus will be this sort of model of like, you know, you raise armies and you conquer states and you dominate people and humiliate them and so on. Fundamentally taking a step outside of that basic paradigm is something not a lot of people do, right? And this guy did, and he did in a big way, and yeah, it worked for him, but he didn't know that at the time. This could have just as easily been him being flayed alive. And did these people, you know, whose gods were being stolen from them or so, and was this just all about, oh, well, we want the temple revenues, and, you know, there's this economic explanation? I don't see it. I don't see people investing in a sort of ideological project that's never done before. And we should not confuse with modern liberalism. Cyrus is not like a progressive or something. This is more about the maintenance of order, the restoration, the respect for the gods, the bringing the world back into harmony with the divine. It's not modern liberalism, but it is something. And it's something different than had existed. And... When you look at how new it must have been, I think for people to take that step, even if it ends up being vindicated, they need to, as a Christian would say, walk out on faith. So this is just my take. It's just my intuition. This is just, you know, what I took away from that particular abstract modern horror movie. Do I think Cyrus really, really believed in this? Well, we'll never know, but my read, my particular interpretation, is yes, I think he did. <laughs>